Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Absolutely. Um, no one's happy about it, but at some point it will turn, and our clubhouse is very optimistic as to that happening sooner than later. Um, part of it is it's just happening at the beginning of the year, so there's a lot of excitement as to starting the season and getting going. We had a good spring, and we got all our guys back from the WBC, so you're excited to get going, and you have this start, and it's, uh, it's frustrating for everybody. But from uh, just overall vibe in the clubhouse, um, Goldie's comment is pretty much how everybody feels. Um, everyone's still loose and, and knowing that this is going to turn. There's too many good players in that clubhouse for it not to. And we saw an example of that there in the ninth. We were capable of doing just about anything against anybody. Um, so it'll come together. That was Ollie Marble a couple of days ago talking about why he believes that the Cardinals are going to get back on track alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Alex, as we wake up today, the Cardinals were sitting in fourth place in the NL Central, and they have a massive road trip coming up on a West Coast swing through Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. I was listening to the Fast Lane yesterday, and Danny Mac said something interesting about this road trip. I think it sums up the importance of this trip pretty well. Here's Danny Mac yesterday on the Fast Lane. We'll see what happens on this road trip. Again, I, I think it's a maybe first half season, part of the season defining road trip. When you're on the road that long against two of the three teams that are pretty good. Season defining road trip is what Danny Mac classified this as. Would you go that far, Alex Ferrario? I would. I absolutely would. And yeah, it's the first month of the season and a lot more stuff can happen. But when you look at the opponents that they'll be taking on, you're taking on a Seattle Mariners team that before the season, everybody believed they could be somebody contending for the playoffs. San Francisco, although not a lot of high expectations, still has a lot of talent on them. Then the L.A. Dodgers, always a team that you have to consider a playoff contending team. So, yeah, considering that you're going to be on this road trip for 10 days with no days off from start to finish. Yeah, I would say this is an important one. If you come out of this 500 or below, there are going to be a lot more people joining that panic bus than they were previously. Yeah, I, I think this is such a massive road trip. I mean, I, I I said this earlier in the week. You know, you can't win a championship. You can't win a division early in April, but you can sure knock yourself out of one. And I, I think a disappointing road trip here below 500, like Alex mentioned, I, I think there's a chance Milwaukee can really open up a gap that's going to feel almost insurmountable. I mean, there's a chance that the Cardinals could be 10 games back in Milwaukee by the end of this road trip, and that's by the end of April. So I, I think it is a massive road trip. I, I do feel like this should be one, though, where they finish above 500 because I I think Seattle's the toughest test. I, I don't think the Dodgers are that good. I watched some of their game last night, even though they won, and San Francisco's not a good baseball team. But you're going out west, and anytime you go out west, it could be a challenge for some of these teams that are in the Midwest and out east. This is one that is going to really determine the fate of the St. Louis Cardinals. 
at least in the first half of the season. I, I don't know about the second half, but if you fall too far behind in the first half, it can make the second half where you need almost a 20-game winning streak to get back into things. These are in what I classify for, like, when Mizzou's playing against Kentucky, South Carolina. These are your swing games. These are your peer programs. These are the teams that coming into the season, people thought you would be similar to, specifically talking about Seattle and the Dodgers. These are second-tier contenders is how I would define these teams. You're not going up against the Braves anymore. You're not going up against the Mets. You're not going up against the Braves or the Yankees. These are really solid teams that have an outside chance of making some interesting, something interesting out of this season. That's how people kind of felt about the Cardinals coming into the year outside of St. Louis. You should, because these teams are not performing very well either right now, be able to take advantage of those teams while they're on your schedule right now. This is the type of 10 game stretch where we could come out of it saying, whew, all right, I think things are going to get back on track. And part of that is also what you have on the slate whenever you get back to St. Louis. You come back here at the beginning of the month of May and you've got the Angels at home. You've got Detroit who stinks at home. And then you go to Chicago, you go to Boston, like all right, now we're talking about teams that you not only are better than, but you should be able to put those teams away pretty well. So I think this has a chance. Somebody on the text line clarified. He said first half of the season defining. Okay, sure. I will go a step further. It can be a season defining trip for this Cardinals team. And T-Bone, you said something interesting about it, what, what it means for the ceiling of this team earlier today as well. Yeah, I, I, we talked about it after the wild card loss last year to the Philadelphia <laughs> Phillies. The lesson to learn should be that you do not want to be outside the top two and have to play in the wild card round because baseball is a weird sport. Anything can happen in a best of three series. That's why you see teams, even as bad as Oakland's, they could beat a really good team in two or three uh, or in a three-game set. Did you I, say Oakland could beat somebody? Yeah, they no, could. That's how no. wacky baseball is. In the no. best of three, they could. You um, said yesterday they can't win against a AAA team. Well, they could do it, uh, possibly. Okay, uh, go about but, your business. W- wait, but when I look at this road trip, I think this is the road trip that defines whether or not the Cardinals can be a top-two team in the National League because you have a bad road trip here. You are going to be behind the eight ball, not just in the National League Central, but behind all the other teams that are fighting for that top two spot. I, the the won't be able to compete with the NL East probably because the Braves and Mets are already opening a gap against you. Milwaukee already opening a gap against you. They could be fighting for a top two spot. You look at the NL West. The Padres have gotten Tatis back, and we'll see how they kind of build upon themselves. But you expect them to be a team that's going to be fighting for a top two seed. You scuffle on this road trip. You play below 500 baseball. I know it's only April. But, man, it will certainly feel like you could knock yourself out of that race for a top two seed because all your energy is going to be focused on climbing back into the NL Central race instead of trying to stay in the race for a top two seed in the the battle for the National League. That's why I think this road trip is so important. I, I think this road trip will determine whether or not they can be a top two team in the NL for the playoff picture. Here's a follow up on that, Alex, for you. Is it more important we feel good about the offense or the pitching after this road trip? Pitching. Plain and simple for me, it's it's pitching because, yes, the offense has scuffled since, I don't know, three weeks ago, pretty much since the Toronto Blue Jays series. But we are all on the same page of even though it's been alarming, we expect and fully expect it to continue to trend in the other direction. Wilson Contreras has started hitting. Tommy Edmond started hitting. You get a couple guys going. You're going to be fine there. This is all about pitching. And I can understand people argument of saying, well, the pitching has been better than the last couple of games. Fine. But from start to finish in the early portion of the season, 
the pitching staff has been consistently inconsistent. And what I mean by that is every single game, we're going into it saying, where's the blow-up inning going to come from? So you did that against the Braves. You did that against the Brewers. You did it against the Rockies, the Pirates. I keep going down this list. You go into this road trip and you go against Seattle. You go against San Francisco and L.A. Teams that don't have the most dangerous offense. If your pitching doesn't come out of this with good feels, then I believe you're in more of a world of hurt if your offense struggles in this road trip. I'm with Alex. I I think it's the pitching. I, I think the offense, though it has come under criticism early on in the season, for being inconsistent, I, I still believe the offense will get turned around. I mean, you look at the lineup card, it's just too good not to end up performing. I look at the rotation, and it feels like a bunch of, like, fours and fives right now outside of Jack Flaherty. I think Jack Flaherty's getting close to being back. Or I think Jack Flaherty is back to being himself. The, the pitching staff is the one that I have the most concerns about on this road trip. I mean, you're going up against some pretty good lineups on the other end of the sheet. The Dodgers, they've got Freeman still. They've got Muntz you can hit for some power. Uh, you look at uh, or, and uh, Betts. You look at the um, Seattle Mariners. You got Julio Rodriguez that's in that lineup. Like This pitching staff needs to find a way to start kind of settling into games. They need to start going deeper into games. They, they've got to become more efficient. Because I said early in the year, I think it was on opening day, I said... Do I worry that they're going to have an innings deficit? No, but are they going to have effective innings? And I, I think right now they have not had that. And that's where it comes to concern for me is you got to start seeing signs of life from this pitching staff. And so far through the first half of the month of April, it's just not been there for me. I think Jack Flaherty's been arguably their best arm outside of Montgomery who just got blown up in his last outing. So I want to see more signs of the starting pitching looking like what their baseball card says they should be. Yeah, I'm the opposite. Uh, Surprise, surprise. I'm going to go on the offensive side of things. I think you need to feel good about the offense after this. And it's not so much because of any of the opponents as it is what this team is, how it's been constructed, who they need to be in order to be a contender in 2023. The Cardinals in their wins this season scored four, nine, six, nine, seven, three, five, and 14 runs. It's not hard to see how this team's going to win, guys. When they are, I heard Dan mention this yesterday on the fast line. When they win, they're batting over 300 with runners in scoring position. When they lose, they're batting under 200 with runners in scoring position. It's very simple. You guys are getting, this team is getting players on base as well as just about anybody in the sport. Their problem has been driving them in consistently. If they're able to do this over the 10-game stretch against Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A., I'm going to feel good about the offense, and that means I feel good about the Cardinals. If they can't do that on this road trip, eventually there does come a point in time where even me, the numbers nerd, says, maybe this is just going to be the year from hell where it doesn't start to regress to the mean. Last year with the Blues, it was the opposite, right? It was a it was a good thing that they did not regress to the mean in 2022. Unfortunately, man, did we see that regression in a big way this year. But last year, the five-on-five five numbers, the nerds were all telling us, hey, what the Blues are doing is unsustainable. None of Nothing about this is real. The shooting percentage is too high as a team. All of this is going to come falling back down to earth. It never did. For a full season, it was able to sustain. This year, we saw the results of that. But... For the Cardinals, it could be the opposite. It could be that this is just a weird year, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work out for them with runners in scoring position. This is a time where you can start to get that back on track. So that is why, for me, if I can feel good about one thing on this road trip when we get home, when this team gets home, I would like it to be the offense. I I guess my only 
kind of counter to that. And the why the reason I look at the pitching is doesn't really help. We've seen good offenses lose because inadequate pitching. And I, I think that would be my concern is if you're not getting good starting pitching, it doesn't matter what the offense is doing because we saw them lose to the Blue Jays 10 to 9. We've seen them put up some decent amount of runs scored, but they're giving up too many in return, like the Diamondbacks game where they had a six, what was a six or seven spot in like the fourth inning. That that's a sign that inadequate pitching can stop a good totally offense. Yeah. And, and that's why I have concerns concerns the truth one is about you need pitching. Both. You, you need, need both. you need both. But I, I think the pitching is more prevalent in my mind. It, it's almost like the saying of uh, good defense uh, wins championships or good defense trumps a good offense. Like that That's how I view pitching. Like when you look at the postseason teams, teams that are striking out bats and hitting for – are striking out bats are the teams that are going on runs. Now they do have good offenses with that, but they're also getting a bunch of swing and miss stuff. I, my concern is that this pitching staff – can't right the ship and even if the offense does it's going to be shut it's going to be uh overlooked because the pitching staff can't yeah. inadequately pitch I, I would just say once again that it comes down to i feel good about this offense with the number with the players that are in it i don't know that i'm ever going to feel great about the pitching like even if they go out and have a good 10 game stretch against seattle san francisco and la i don't know that it's going to convince me that the cardinals suddenly have this monstrous pitching well staff. then you realistically can't sit here and act like this team could push for a top two spot in the national league if that's the case with just the pitching with just the pitching yep. I, I mean if, if your offense is got you feeling good and the runners in scoring position improves on this road trip, but your pitching is still giving up one massive inning that you can't climb yourself back into, then realistically, no matter what they do on this 10-game road trip, I can't sit here and say they could compete for a top-two spot in the National League. Somebody on the text line, this is probably the point that I have not uh, voiced well, but the text line, I think, does a better job of it. The difference with the hitting is... The difference is the hitting is actually within their power to change internally. The pitching will likely need to be supplemented at the deadline, regardless of if they perform well in this 10 game road trip or later on. I think that's probably what I'm trying to voice here is like, even if they have a really good 10 game stretch with their pitching, I will still be concerned about their pitching. If the hitting goes well in this 10 game stretch, it will be assigned to me that our concern was overstated and that it will be okay in the long-term future. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, really excited about this. David Backus, the former Blues captain, will join the show. I want to ask him what we talked yesterday with, uh, with, with Bax, which is, is this team in need of a captain? What is the role of a captain for the Blues in 2023? We talked about that a little bit yesterday. We'll talk about it with David Backus coming up in 15 minutes. But coming up next, am I supposed to have sympathy for Max Scherzer after what's taken place with him over the last 24, 48 hours? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He said, my hand's too sti- sticky. And I said, I swear on my kid's life, I'm not using anything else. This is sweat and rosin, sweat and rosin. I keep saying it over and over. And they touch my hand, they say it's sticky. And i like, yes, it is because it's sweat and rosin. And they say it's too sticky. It's not, and it, it, they threw me out because of that. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Max Scherzer talking about his wearing uh, on his kid's life. Yeah. He got thrown out of the game at audio courtesy of SNY up in New York. 
That was a couple of days ago. Alex, yesterday it was announced that he was going to be suspended for 10 games. At first, he decided to appeal that suspension. He has since decided not to do so. He says it's because, well, I thought it was going to be a neutral arbiter that was going to be able to take care of this case. Then it was basically Major League Baseball. And he's like, I'm not going to end up getting this thing taken down. So whatever, I'll go ahead and do this right now. The Mets preferred him to go about it that way. Alex, I've seen a lot of people cry and foul on this. Or they say, hey, why is Max Scherzer getting in trouble for using rosin and sweat the way that the league wants him to? It's very simple to me. The rules state very clearly what you can and what you cannot do. And Max Scherzer went outside of those rules. He had too much tackiness on his fingers early in that game. The umpire said, hey, you got too much stickiness here. You got to get this taken care of. He apparently went down below and tried to use some rubbing alcohol. He tried to get the stickiness off of his hands. It didn't work, whatever. Neither here nor there. Then he went back for another check, and they said it was the stickiest they've ever seen since doing these checks. Now, somebody on the text line, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line, makes a fair point from the 314. Guys, three pitchers have been tossed for a sticky substance, and all of them were done by the same umpire, Phil Cuzzy. Absolutely true. Also, we have been checking for sticky substances for three years, and there have been a total of three pitchers that have been booted from the game for using a sticky substance. By one guy? By one guy, but over the course of three years. At some point, you got to take ownership of this, man. I'm sorry, I have zero, and I mean zero, sympathy for Max Scherzer. You messed up. I mean, it's a take little, ownership of it's it. It's a little alarming that only one umpire out of everybody is only tossing guys with sticky but it's substances. It's not like he's out here doing it every game that he's ma- he's umpired. Understandably so. It's but happened three times in a three-year stretch. It's one guy. That's a little, I don't know, a little sketchy to me that one guy deems this to be tossable while everybody else where I'm assuming we're seeing plenty of sweat and rosin that they're like, well, yeah, it's probably fine. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is basically saying one time a year, one time out of probably what a hundred hundred games or so that he's umpiring over the course of the season, one out of 100, he's saying, ah, this is going beyond what is necessary for you. I, I that's on you. That's on the pitcher. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for these guys that are going out there and clearly trying to skirt the rules. I mean, I don't have sympathy either. I'm just, it it is a little alarming on that sense of it. But uh, I mean, the other question I have is didn't, or maybe did I like dream this, that when they tossed somebody with sticky, sticky substances on their hands, weren't they supposed to like send it off and have it checked? Yeah, they're doing that. I mean, I think they sent the glove to the headquarters. And does that change anything? No, no. I mean, I, especially because I'm assuming they're going to find what Scherzer probably knows is that whatever it is, it's beyond the tackiness level of what Major League Baseball wants. Uh, the the interesting part about it is I, I don't even look at the umpire thing. I, I think that's just one of those coincidences. I, I'm not concerned about an umpire tossing. It's not like it's three guys it's in three, three games. It's three times in three years. What are um, we doing here? By I, the same guy. That's a little sketchy. It's I, not, though. No, it's, it's, it's One guy deeming that the sticky substances is tossable. For three years, dude. Everybody. Yeah, the other guys are... Uh, That's a little sketchy. Sound like a conspiracy theorist to me. I mean, it it is. It it does seem a little sketchy. I don't think it is at all. If I told you, Alex, hey, in a three-year stretch, you were speeding every day, and you were pulled over by the same cop three times in that three-year stretch. That's not sketchy. That's you going beyond the speed limit every day. But that's the same person. 
this is a different person than three separate times that have been tossed. Right, but it's the same concept. Like, they're, they're trying to skirt the rules, and there's a guy in Major League Baseball that one time a year, one time a year, we're not talking about him going out there and 30 times this season he has ejected a guy from the game. No, one time a year he is saying this goes beyond what is reasonable when it comes to the tackiness that we have a rule on the books for. That's not sketchy. Seems like they got to meet their quota every year. Okay. And and I I also read somewhere, I think it was Ken Rosenthal reported it, Max Scherzer did not use the rosin bag that was on the mound, the one that is brought out by a game official. Scherzer was using a rosin bag from in the Mets clubhouse. Which is also against the rules. Yes. (laughs) So, and and so like, though I I saw something on Twitter yesterday where, you know, when you rub, uh, uh, rubbing alcohol on a hand with rosin, it doesn't, uh, get rid of it it kind of dries it up and almost makes it like spilled soda okay that would be one thing if he was using the rosin bag on the mound but if he's using a rosin bag that's from in the Mets clubhouse yeah I've got no sympathy for it because he was trying to get a a unfair advantage now with all that being said I also think this is just another sign of Major League Baseball not having um, a I don't want to say it's not a clear rule for sticky substance because they do have something but it is that they need to become more they need to continue building towards having a um, I'm trying to think what the word would be, but a like a, ta- a ball that's pre-tacked, which they've talked about. And I know sure. Theo Epstein has mentioned uh, on the Starkville podcast that they're looking into doing that. They need to have something universal to where there is no more kind of, oh, is this what this is? Is it sweat and rosin? Is it this? No, they, they need to find a way to get what I think it's the J- Japanese league that has a pre-tacked baseball that everybody is using. Major League Baseball's got to get to that point so we don't have to have conversations of well, was Scherzer in the wrong? Did Major League Baseball overstep the lines? The problem, though, is pitchers are then going to push back and say, this isn't the type of ball that I want. This isn't the tackiness that I want. So, like, we know how this goes between Major League Baseball and the MLBPA. They, They push back against all of these rules getting implemented this year. Now we have the rules and fans are like, hey, Kind of like the rules. Kind of like what ha- what has happened here. And the players did not want to agree to these. They will probably, almost certainly, do the same thing with the baseballs. So I, the the thing though, there's there's no winning they, in this they, scenario. They will push back, but they will they will lose. I mean the the rules committee, if I'm not mistaken, or whatever it is that they're they using, have to give them like a year it, in advance. Yeah, it, that and it's uh five. I think it's five owners, three players and one umpire so like they're set up to lose the vote anyway so to me i understand the players complaint but basically all i would say is yeah you either adjust and uh, uh evolve in the the baseball game or you're just going to be out of the league i mean you just have to adjust if you're going to continue to play the sport of baseball and i would say the same thing is true of max scherzer in the spot agree adjust man adjust you you skirted the rules i'm not saying that he's out here cheating like that's fine he he got too sticky this is the rules. This is the way that the game is played now. And if you don't like that, tough. Like, go go pitch better whenever you get back. I'm sorry, Max Scherzer, but you went a step too far in this start. And the rules state that if you do this, you will be ejected from the game and you will be suspended. That is not non-negotiable. That is the way that these rules are written right now. Somebody on the text line from the 618 says, so you're telling me a guy should be suspended for using sweat, which your body produces naturally in rosin, which the league literally provides for you. How can you suspend somebody over a naturally natural bodily fluid and an approved substance? I don't get it. This substance was not approved. The one that he was using was not the one that we see that is behind the mound. He was using one that was down in the dugout to make his hand stickier and whether it was or was not, like, above and beyond, like, doesn't matter. They deemed it to be. He was given opportunities to try to make it better. He didn't. 
It didn't work out, and he was suspended as a result. It's two starts. The guy is going to be fine. The Mets are going to be fine. He messed up here, and I have zero sympathy for Max Scherzer. Pitchers around all of Major League Baseball have had to adjust to these new rules, and out of all of the games, I don't even know how many games are in a regular season. I would have to do the math on it, but it's a whole hell of a lot. 162 games for 30 different teams. There have been three pitchers over a three-year stretch that have been kicked out of a game. Three. Scherzer's one of them. This rose to a level of attention because it's Max Scherzer. Sorry, I don't feel bad for you, dude. You got to adjust, and I think he will whenever he gets back from this. Coming up next, David Backus, the former Blues captain here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Kylie and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. It is BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And we've had a lot of discussion this week following the Blues exit interviews, talking about leadership and culture and the St. Louis Blues team headed into this really intriguing offseason. We talked with Barrett Jackman yesterday who gave us some perspective, but I wanted to get more. And I welcome in now on our 101 ESPN hotline, a man who was a captain for the St. Louis Blues for five seasons. He was with St. Louis for the majority of his career. Uh, David Backus is with us today here on 101 ESPN. David, how are you today, sir? I'm excellent. How are you today? Doing fantastic. Really appreciate you taking some time out and, and hopping on with us because uh, when it comes to leadership, uh, everybody, even Doug Armstrong, cited the leadership that you provided in St. Louis and somebody that he said he extremely respects in the game. And the major question we have, David, is the struggles that the Blues went through this season. The uh, amount of players that had the conversations of, you know, professionalism was lost, the culture was lost, and we got to find a way to get it back. Were you surprised when when you hear those comments coming from a St. Louis Blues team where you know that that culture has been there for such a long time? I'm surprised. I think that something that the culture, and, and I'm glad you started with Barry yesterday. That's such a great spot because that's where I feel like the the culture was laid for what we were able to take the team from when um, I got to the team and, and being a bottom you know a bottom of the barrel first overall pick when we picked Eric Johnson to you know five years consecutively in the playoffs and then a Stanley Cup in 2019 um, it's culture is not something that you buy it's not something you can just all of a sudden pull out of thin air. You have to build it and you have to be intentional about it. And it takes time and it, it takes time to maintain. So I know there's, there's a lot of turnover that happens in all sports, but um, you know, starting with a guy like Ryan O'Reilly and, and Braden Shen, who are blue collar, hardworking guys, tough, tough old school kind of hockey players. I guess that's the shocking part that um, there was a slip, but there's also, you know, you get some young kids that get keys to the castle and, and big contracts, and now 
are they the ones that are driving the culture in the room, or is it still the guys that have the better know-all and, and the guys that have been there and done it in the, in the former group of guys? And so that's where I'm seeing it. And as Army mentioned, is, is this an anomaly or is this the trend? And one both well for the group and the other one certainly doesn't. I think it's it's something that's not gone currently from the team, but they have to grab it in a in a big way. And those the two young guys with the big contracts um, have to be, if not leading it, have to be first in line to support you know a guy like Braden Shen or whoever's going to be you know the next leader of the team next year. So David, I, I'm I'm not trying to put you on inside of that locker room, but if You've served in that role of being the captain, and if you were still back, to take you back into the mid-2010s, for example, here in St. Louis, and you were talking with Robert Thomas or Jordan Cairo, what are those conversations like? What does this summer look like for you as you're trying to get this thing back on track? Well, I think it's, it's A, there's a, a common base of a relationship between any of the guys on the team that needs to be built, so you've got the equity um, built up in a relationship so that whatever, if it's game five and you said, Hey, we need more from you. Not that we need you to score more goals, but you need to equate your head. Just like I think Alex Ovechkin did in Washington, when he went from being, he's going to score 40 goals every year to a Stanley cup champion. As he said, the defensive side of the game means just as much as the offensive side of the game. And I'll block a shot if I have to. And, um, equate to them that if you back check hard and stop a goal, that's equally good for our team as you going end to end and scoring a goal on the other side and being able to, you know, get into those guys' face and say, this isn't good enough. This isn't our standard. And to me, I've always thought that if, if you can hold guys to a work ethic standard, their skills going to come out and it's going to be a great outcome. You know, guy like Vladdy Tarasenko early in his career thought he could, you know, maybe pick when he was going to be fully engaged. And there were some not pretty moments between the two of us, but in the end there was a common respect there and he turned out to be a, a pretty good player and a pretty big uh, contributor to a Stanley Cup in St. Louis. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, David, because that was the first thing that I thought of when when Doug talked about you know that disconnect from him and his group and talking about the younger players in today's game compared to what it's been in the past. And he said he's just been uncertain. And I specifically remember the one practice at Enterprise Center where you and Vladdy had a disagreement in practice, and you know both of you talked about it, and both of you said, "Look, we're going to keep that behind closed doors, and we're going to approach it." And of course, the rest of that season went on for six with that team but you've seen that you've seen young players like Vladdy Tarasenko in St. Louis I'm sure you saw young guys when you were in Boston and then most recently when you retired you were playing with the Anaheim Ducks and saw a young Trevor Zegras and a young Troy Terry what is it about I guess the young players in the disconnect that Doug Armstrong was talking about um and again there's a disclaimer that I'm not in the room and I haven't had a personal conversation with any of those any of the younger guys that are currently there but what I saw throughout my career, and I think anyone that's over age, probably 30, would, would recognize this word is very prevalent with the younger generation, is the word entitlement. And whether or not they're owed anything or they're going to earn it and earn it every single day. And to me, that's the difference between the new generation player and the old generation player. And whether that's salary cap um, 
you know, created or if that's a just general culture, uh, this is America and we're going to have everything handed to us type of feeling. So, but that's, that's the death knell, I think, of team culture and it's us before me mindset. And so that's what I think uh, is the difference and being able to, and Doug Armstrong had done a phenomenal job, whether it was the culture in the room that helped those guys along uh, or it was the the players that he's gotten that he's done his diligence due diligence with and brought them in and said these guys are are going to work for it every single day um it's tough though because those two young guys are phenomenal and i'm not saying it's just those two young guys but they've now you know in the new era he made a bet on them that they were going to be the future of the team and that was the going rate to keep them around and now you know, he needs them to step up and say, I care about all 200 feet of the ice and I'm going to be a difference maker every night. And David, when when I look at that scenario, whether it's the Blues or any other team in the NHL and people say, oh, well, you know, the coach has got to be able to do that or you got to bring somebody in who can do that. I, I truly believe it has nothing to do with anybody from the outside and it's going to have everything to do with those individual players and how they go about it moving forward and missing the playoffs might be the perfect start for it. Yeah, for two guys that have tasted the pinnacle in a Stanley Cup, and now they've tasted what it's like to be uh, mid-April and staring around and going, what do, what do I do now for the next six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, when I was hoping to still be playing? And hopefully that is enough, and you're right. It's got to be something from within them. And if it's not, you know, there's there's alternatives that Army has at his fingertips, but they're not beautiful when you've, you know, doled out a contract the way that, he's had to in order to retain those players. Uh, I think of a guy like David Perron, who at, you know, seven, 18 drafted in the first round and came in and had that sense of entitlement. And it was, it was painstaking to just be like, that's not how this works. We're all on the same team, but why would you get the same, you know, first dibs at anything when we've got hall of fame caliber resumes here? Yes. We're all, you know, part of this team but there is a hierarchy within the team and you need to know your role and one day you'll get to that spot as well and so that type of mentality and he finally relented and I think he's made one heck of a career for himself now knowing what you know it takes to be a pro and to simulate to that team mindset so there's work to be done but I don't think it's it's out of reach by any stretch. So that was the example I wanted to go to with you David because I, I think you could make an argument that a big piece of what led to this year was David Prawn no longer being inside of that dressing room as being one of the leaders of that club. And so, David, when you think about Perron, when you think about Vladdy, and you've been around a lot of younger guys that have come in probably thinking they were going to change the league, right? You've seen that happen before. How do they get to that next level of understanding okay, I, I've got to be more than just a highlight reel night in, night out. I've got to be able to play this 200-foot game because that's going to be what's best for the team. Is everybody different? Like, what are the steps in your mind that lead to that aha moment for young players now? Well, it's a lot of humble pie. And like you said, missing the playoff could be that embarrassment and you know being on display of like, hey, this guy's supposed to be one of our best players but he's only concerned about this side of the ice i think david Perron, when um you know he was coming around in st louis i think he got a lot of his eyes open when he went to edmonton and saw it 
very prolifically through their culture of only caring about the offensive side of the game. Um, and, and you talk about a guy like Trevor Zegras. He's a highlight reel. He's a phenomenal player. Uh, but does that matter more to you, or does winning games and coming together and battling for your teammates matter more to you? And that's individual decisions. And then I think, you know, in, in Boston, the management was very supportive of the guys of, if there wasn't a guy buying in, it didn't matter how talented he was. Um, you know, they try to maximize return for sure, but it was it was like, okay, he's not working, he's not buying in, gone. And when you do that to one or two guys that thought they were untradeable or thought they were supreme talents or thought that, you know, they were above average to be in the league and they were just jettisoned because they weren't buying in, it starts to uh, be a requirement to have that mentality that, we care about the team and our team success more about more than our stat line. I'll give you an example. When we were in Boston, um, every year at the end of the year, even if I think the first year we lost to Ottawa, we would do a team trip and we'd fly. I think it was we'd fly to Scottsdale or to Fort Lauderdale, and it was like, hey, in four days we're all booking flights. We're all going to Fort Lauderdale and we're going to spend two nights in this hotel and we're just going to you know, have some team bonding, knowing that everyone wasn't going to be back the next year. But the first year, two guys didn't go on the trip, and those two guys weren't with the team the next year. And it was it was the support of management that said, these guys couldn't take – they hopefully were planning their, you know, until middle of June that their schedules were full, but they couldn't take three days out of their personal time that after the season was over to commit to the team and have some shared experiences with their teammates. And all of a sudden – there's there's a eyes open to say these are requirements to be bought into the group and to to really invest in what we're doing here at their unit. Wow, and that kind of circles back to how we started, David. And this will be the final one. We appreciate you uh, giving us some of this time today and uh, providing us your insight. But a lot of that comes to the leadership conversation, and you know the captain and the alternate captains. And you know we all, we take pride in the in the C in St. Louis, just like I know you do from who wore it throughout their time with the St. Louis Blues. And Doug Armstrong talked about it in his exit interviews of trying to decide, you know, what the the letter C means right now in the NHL compared to what it's mean in the past. And you look at the St. Louis Blues team, and, and I'm curious, somebody who wore the captaincy, who saw a Patrice Bergeron and a Ryan Getzlav as the captains with their team, uh, what do you believe the, the, the captaincy means in the NHL today? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's being the ultimate you know, leader is about sacrificing for the, the whole and, and sacrificing your own success for the success of the whole larger group being the first guy that's willing to model that to be willing to, you know, get that message down the whole roster and have everyone bought in. I, I, I don't know, you know, Braden Shan, I got tons of respect for him and Ryan O'Reilly. I think he's, he's a phenomenal hockey player. Riddle me this though, of like, look at the captains in the league that have the success. You mentioned a Ryan Getzlaff or Patrice Bergeron, um, Alex Petrangelo in St. Louis guys that, have a lot of tenure with a team that get the culture that grew up with the culture, maybe drafted by that team and spend their whole career there. There's something deeper than I got to see in my chest and I'm a prominent player and I want this team to win. And I'm willing to put in the effort. There's almost a, a part of your soul. That's part of um, part of the team and the organization. And I felt that when I was in St. Louis and 
that to me is something that I think is very critical. Look at a Steven Stamkos in, in Tampa, um, Nathan McKinnon in Colorado, guys that only know that team that they play for, not that it can't work otherwise, but just that that's a one heck of a start to picking who the next leader is going to be. That being said, it's got to be the right person and they got to have the right personality traits, but you've got to be like, if, if you're on a long-term deal and they slap a C on your chest, there's no pay increase. There's no uh, extra compensation and it comes with a ton of responsibility. Are you going to embrace that and do it to the best of your ability and willing to stick your neck on the line and, and combat some of your teammates in order to make everyone better? Or is it a, a beautiful you know, stamp of approval that you've made it to the pinnacle of the league and you're going to do your best, but it's, it's just going to be what it's going to be. And I think, to me, that sort of quality, along with that, you know, setting the work ethic and having, you know, it's like starting a business or, or starting an organization. You've got to come up with a mission statement on what we are as a group, and that's got to guide every decision and every action that you do every day, and that's a great place to start. David, final question. We'll get you out of here on this, and thanks so much once again for your time today. I know you're uh, you're busy with some of the charitable work that you do off of the ice. Is, is there anything else that you're planning to do within hockey? Are, are you planning to go into the coaching side of things or the hockey operations side? What's next for David Backus? Yeah, you know what? I, I still love the game. Uh, I had a couple of former teammates over here at our house last night. Kept up with them and their wives, and now there's a bunch of little kids running, running around. <laughs> um, but now, you know, my kids are seven and five, and I want to be present for them. And unfortunately, the hockey world is a lot of nights and weekends, yeah. and uh, that conflicts with my goal number one, to be present with my kids until – they're too cool for dad and they want me to not be around them. Um, if there was some role that I could accomplish both, I think I might embrace it, but I just haven't found that that exists yet. So right now I'm going to be dad and hopefully super dad, if I can get that title. And then when that's, uh, when that is uh, run its course, then, you know, hopefully the game's not passed me by too far and I can jump back in in some regards. David, I got a two-year-old and a nine-month-old at home, so I can already tell you with seven and five, you're a super dad in my mind because I feel like I'm trying to accomplish that. Hey, uh, how about Athletes for Animals? I know it was an incredible charitable thing that you had in St. Louis when you were here, and I know opportunities still for St. Louis people to be involved with it, but how is everything going with Athletes for Animals? It's actually going really well. Uh, Purina's stepped up the last two years and done some partnerships with us right now. We have uh, something called Monday Like a Pro Challenge, and if you go to Monday Like a ProChallenge.com. Uh, you can register and it's free. And all you do is log the minutes that you're active with your pets. As springtime's coming around in summer, um, every week we log a million minutes uh, active with your pets. Pro Plan's going to donate 15 grand to athletes for animals, and all that money that comes in, we get it back out into the community in the form of uh, grants to other organizations that are doing great work around. So if you can join that, that would be lovely. Otherwise. Uh, yeah, we're still doing it, and my wife spends so much of her time and effort and energy on it that uh, you know it can't help but continue to be a successful. I see videos of you and the doggos in the backyard, so I know it's still successful. David, truly appreciate the time and the insight that you provided us today, man. Thank you so much. Best to you and, uh, and Mrs. Backus and the kiddos at home, and we look forward to hopefully chatting with you again real soon, man. 
All the best. Thanks for having me. And yeah, uh, hopefully uh, you get some warm weather there coming through and, and enjoy a summer soon. Absolutely. There you go. David Backus, uh, former St. Louis Blues captain. And uh, again, just about as insightful as you can ask for when it comes to this side of the game, which is why I, I really wanted to get his perspective on it. And I mean, he had a ton for me to like sit there and nitpick and be like, oh man, that's something that you want to yep. jump off of, you know? Uh, when he said that it means a little bit more when you've been drafted by a team to be their captain. Yep. It's hard not to feel that. Like, when I say that, what I mean is there is something different about being born and bred into an organization. Absolutely. You know, and so from that perspective, like they, th- there was a reason why David Backus felt something a little bit more here in St. Louis. There was a reason why there was such a pull for David Perron to come back here to St. Louis. There was a reason why there was such a love affair between Vladimir Tarasenko in this fan base, even despite all of the frustrations early on, even despite some of the questions about defensively what kind of effort he was given, and even despite at the end him requesting a trade from this team. That's different for somebody like Brandon Saad or even Justin Falk, who mm-hmm. wasn't drafted by this organization, didn't come up through this system. Now, I think if ever there was somebody that came from somewhere else that just felt like they were always meant to be a St. Louis Blue, it's Braden Shin, but I guess that would be the one thing that would be holding me back from giving him that captaincy. But I, I really do think it almost feels as if he's been adopted into the community the yeah. way that some of these other guys have been. Braden Shen, and they're not the same player, obviously, because they don't play the same positions, but Braden Shen feels like what Chris Pronger and Brett Hall and Al McKinnis was in terms of like, yeah, you weren't drafted by the team, but your success has come with the St. Louis Blues. If you look at stats since he's been a St. Louis Blue, he's a leader in goals, assists, points, power play points, game-winning goals, like... And even beyond the stat sheet, yeah, he's a blue through and through. Yeah, like and that and that was the biggest thing with David Backus and Alex Petrangelo. I mean, I remember the the press conference with David Backus when he was named the captain. Like Bobby Plager was the one that was talking about him, and you know that's why at the time everybody was talking about Barrett Jackman being a captain or Keith Kachuk being a captain, although he wasn't drafted by the St. Louis Blues. But yeah, man, when he said that, I mean, it absolutely pulled you in a direction of. Maybe that's why they're going the route of looking at it as nobody gets a captain until we deem Robert Thomas ready to take on that role. If, if, and that's the other thing, man. The the, the I told T Bone up to to pinpoint it. Maybe we can get into it later or next week. But when he was talking about the Boston Bruins and basically said like they had full support from management that when a player was not on the same page as the team, they got rid of him. Yep. And he's not going to name names. But the first player that I thought of was Tyler Sagan. Tyler Sagan, that was the guy that everybody talked about. Is like, oh, well, he's the young kid and he doesn't get it. He was a part of that Stanley Cup championship team. And then a couple of years later, he was traded to the Dallas Stars. That, I mean, that is a organization that views it as if you're not on board with what Zdeno Char and Patrice Bergeron are saying, then you're out of here. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylo. We'll get back into this coming up in the 12 o'clock hour. But coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. And Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibility. 
Prosperity.com. 399-9646 is the error comfort service text line for Ask Us Anything from the 314. Guys, do you think the Battlehawks are going to end up making the playoffs? If you want me to go through that tiebreaker system, oh, yeah. you got something else coming for you. Uh, my answer is probably not. And I think they need to change the playoff system, boys. We talked about this a little bit before the show yesterday. I think the new process should be who had the most fans show up this year. I think that should be the tiebreaker. That does seem like an XFL thing to do. I think we should do that in all pro sports. Okay. Who had more sellouts? You're in the playoffs. I think that St. Louis would benefit greatly from that. Blues would be in the playoffs right now. Are we sure? Yeah, they would. You know who wouldn't be? The Florida Panthers. They like their hockey down there. They're going to beat the Bruins. I'm going to say Battlehawks miss the playoffs. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say Battlehawks miss the playoffs. Like even it. even if they have the sold out uh, arenas for BK's liking, yeah, it's not going to happen, buddy. I'm here for it. AJ McCarron. Yo, chill. Is that a joking <laughs> word? Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line for ask us anything from the three one four guys. Is there any part of the United States that you have not been to but would really like to go? And if so, where would that be? I've got mine. Yeah, DC. I've really? always wanted to go to Washington, D.C., and Katie and I have really talked cool. about it. But we've said if we go, we've got to go for like a week. You can't go for a few days because there's so much to do. So that's the spot that I want to go. D.C. is great. That was our mistake. We only went for two days, oh, three really? days. Yeah. Definitely was not enough. Uh, I, I really want to go out. I've never really been that far west. Um, I, I want to go to Seattle. I, I've always wanted to go up to the Seattle area. I've mm-hmm. heard it's beautiful. Uh, that would be the place that I would want to go to. Portland's another one I've heard is incredible. Portland I've heard too. it's incredible. Um, uh, here's BK. Are you going to say all the He's cherry-picking geography. What? What are you going to complain about with Portland? I've heard it's beautiful, but... But it's not Kansas City. Fine, I get it, man. No, that's a very no, big no, that's there. not what I was going to say. Um, they have some issues in Portland, um, but I've heard it's got a great beer community. I have heard Philly is amazing, actually. Yeah, the city of brotherly love. I've heard everybody is super nice there when you no, go. No, no. They, I've, they I, don't yeah. throw things at you. I've heard Philly is amazing. That is one place that I would love to go to. Philly's Seattle cool. is another. Seattle is an area that I would love to go to. I, I've never been to the Pacific. It's North rainy. Coast. My cousin lived there yeah. for a couple of years. He said it's cloudy and rainy 24-7. I, uh, I really want to go back to Philly. I went when I was younger. I just want to go back and just get a Philly cheesesteak there because I, I feel like I didn't do that when I was there. And I was, like I said, very young, so... I don't remember a lot about it. Uh, from the 636, would you rather go to a college football game or an NFL game? Where's the college football game? Yeah, I was going to say, I Where's, need context. Let's just put it this way. A big college football okay. game or a big NFL game? All right, so not an Illinois or Mizzou game. I would rather go to a big college football game, personally. I think I, I would, the, too. experience yeah. from start to finish is better at a college football game than an NFL game. Because if I'm going to a football game, I'm not so much going to go as a fan to watch the game. I'm going to take in the atmosphere the atmosphere and energy and that's going to be college football like there's nothing in the nfl that would live up to a game between ohio state and michigan there's nothing totally agree nothing yeah i i would definitely do college football game over nfl because i mean you've seen the atmospheres whether it's that or it's like the iron bowl for example all those great rivalries all have fantastic um atmospheres even a good nfl game the atmosphere is good but it it doesn't contend close to college football i mean those stadiums have hundreds of thousands of people in them 
And the NFL max is out at what? 60? What's the biggest one? Uh, somebody 80? 70 or 80. Yeah. So it's just not the same in my opinion. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll dive into some NFL quick hitters, including a St. Louis in that is not going to be playing in the NFL for the first six weeks of the season for making a boneheaded mistake. We'll talk about that coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, how is Ollie Marmel going to handle the outfield against the right-handed pitchers that the Cardinals are expected to face this week? And we'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. High fly ball, left center field. That ball is deep. That ball's going to get down. Edmund had to hold up. He's rounding third. Here he comes. The throw to the plate is way late. And the Cardinals with back-to-back doubles strike in the first. There's a shot hammered toward right center. That was well struck. That ball's going to bounce off the wall. O'Neal around third. He's got the green light. There'll be no throw. It's a 7-3 game. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Dylan Carlson heating up that audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. He's been really good over his last few games. The problem is it's only the last few games. And now the Cardinals are expected to see right-handed starters over the weekend. Alex, you've got three righties expected to start for Seattle over this three-game set. Starts tonight with George Kirby. Now, uh, George Kirby is a guy that you're probably not starting Dylan Carlson against would be my assumption. Um, he is uh, much better against lefties than he is righties. You're you're probably not going to see him tonight. That being said, Luis Castillo could be a little different because in his career, Dylan Carlson has actually been pretty good against Luis Castillo. He's got a 350 batting average and a 980 OPS. Small sample. It's only 20 at-bats, but he has been good against him. And then against Chris Flexen, this is one of those things where I don't know if the Cardinals would actually do it, but if they were willing to, remember a couple of years ago, Tommy Edman went up against a right-handed pitcher and hit from the right side. And it was because he had reverse splits, that pitcher did, where he gave up more opportunities to righties than he did against lefties and said, oh, this might be a spot where we can make this work. Chris Flexen is that guy. Right-handed hitters this year are batting 350 against him with an OPS over 1,000. Meanwhile, lefties have not done well against him at all. They have an OPS below 600, and this is not an outlier. This is what it's been like for him for the majority of his season, or for the majority of his career, rather. It's kind of similar to the Andre Pallante experience, but as a starter with Chris Flexen. So what you could do there is start Dylan Carlson as a right-handed hitter against Flexen. The reason I bring this up, I don't know how the Cardinals are going to go about their outfield mix this weekend. If you were in Ollie Marmol's shoes, Alex, what do you do specifically with Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill? Are those guys getting opportunities this weekend? I mean, they have to get opportunities this weekend because as much as we can sit here and say that the splits don't work in their favor and the matchups don't work in their favor, you also, I believe at some point, especially in this stretch, you really got to figure out, are these guys seriously fourth or fifth outfielders or they can be something for us? The way I look at it is if you're taking on three righties this weekend, it's pretty obvious that Lars Newtbar, Jordan Walker are going to be seeing a majority of those games. Walker might be two of three. Alec Burleson, you would imagine, is probably going to be doing all three of those, depending on the defense and the DH spot. And then to me, I, I think you might be looking this as 
Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson replacing one of those two players one game in this three-game stretch. So O'Neal's going to get a game, Carlson's going to get a game, and then whomever's the hot bat might get that third one. Yeah, I, I think you'll see at least both O'Neal and Carlson for one game. Like tonight, I expect it probably to be Burleson, Newpar, and uh, Walker. That'll probably be your outfield for tonight's Agreed. game. When you go against Castillo, where I'll be interested to see is what they decide to do with Carlson because Burleson is playing so well. Now, I understand that you know Burleson hasn't ever seen Luis Castillo, but Carlson does have the successful numbers. <laughs> I would almost recommend that you I, – I, I would say you start Carlson just because he's it's somebody that he has played well against. But the Cardinals, without knowing the history of what Burleson looks like, I could see where they start him. That's the decision I'm fascinated by. I, I think Sunday, I, I don't think you see Carlson. I, I don't think they'll experiment with him hitting right-handed against a right-handed pitcher. I, I think they will stick with <laughs> Lars Newpar, Jordan Walker – or excuse me, they will. Yeah, they'll stick with probably Lars Newpar, Jordan Walker, and I think you'll see Tyler O'Neill in left field against uh, him because of the, without the reverse splits. I, I think you're not going to see. Um, I, I don't think you're going to see Carlson bat right hand. I, I just don't see yeah, them I'm trying to attempt to do that. I think you're going to see him take the at bats as he typically does because they're going to say like we got to get you going if that's the case. But I also view this as situational with how the series goes, because if you don't score runs in the first game and then you're taking on Luis Castillo and you struggle in that one and you got to win at least one game, then I look at that as they're going to say blank the defense, blank getting these guys opportunities. We're going to put whomever is hitting right now that opportunity. And that might be Carlson and O'Neill if they're hitting the ball, which Carlson has been in the last couple of games. I, I just think right now, like I, I think Burleson has really set himself apart to where he's going to be a guy that has to stay in the lineup. I, I don't, I, I'm almost to the point where you almost don't have to worry about O'Neill uh, and Carlson. I, I think right now Burleson has just set himself apart to where you have to stick with him in the outfield. That, that's where I am, at least with Alec Burleson. So if that's the case, then, I, I, you might look at this three-game series as bleep the defense. You might look at this and say, if we're going to go down the path that we started the seg- or the show off with talking about how the offense was going to perform versus how the pitching was going to perform, you could at some point in this three-game set against Seattle say, blank the defense, we're going to play Alec Burleson because of his bat, we're going to play Jordan Walker if that's where he's at in large Newpar because of their bat, and figure out DH opportunities for Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson. Yeah, I, I think right now, I, I don't know if it's the blank the defense mentality, I, I just think it's at the point where it's and it's going to look this way, but I, I think you just play your best offensive bats right now because of Yeah, but if you're playing Alec Burleson scuffling. for three games, you're saying bleep the defense. I, I guess that's fair, but I, I guess the... I think he's been better than uh, Jordan Walker defensively I so agree. far. I yeah. agree, but if you're playing both of those guys for three games, welcome back, by the way. If you're playing both guys for three games, you're also looking at this and saying we're going offense over defense. I think that's what they've always done. Yeah. I think yeah, all yeah, these approach has been for, so far at least, here in St. Louis, if you can hit, you can play, and... I, I think that that's what they're, how they're going to approach this, and I think that's how they've approached so far in Ollie Marmol's tenure. I was looking at it, though. I disagree with what you said about Sunday. I think they should bat Dylan Carlson right-handed in this scenario, and I think it's going to be a really interesting proposition to see how the Cardinals play this. I think Ollie, and I, you guys know I'm a big Ollie Marmol supporter. I think he's a very good manager. I think he gets underestimated by fans, at least this season, for who what he can do as a manager. I think he's fallen into the lefty-righty uh, splits too often. Him going with Taylor Motter in some of these spots, like over Nolan Gorman, for example, it's inexcusable, honestly. 
And when I'm looking at what's going to happen on Sunday, you've got a right-handed pitcher on the mound, which typically means load up that uh, lineup with left-handed hitters. But when you've got a righty that in his career, and this is not just a one-season sample size, has been significantly worse against right-handed hitters than he has against lefties, Tommy Edmond should probably be batting right-handed in that game. Dylan Carlson should probably be starting in batting right-handed in that game. I would have Tyler O'Neill in the lineup in that game as well. Cardinals fans, there will be a certain portion that say, this is weird, why are you doing this? And you can say very simply, because he's not good against right-handed hitters well, in su- his career. And Sunday's also, you're going from a night-to-day game. Mm-hmm. So you're probably going to see a lot of the getaway lineup in that one com- compared to who plays in the first two games in that third one. I, I just look at it, and I, I think right now, like, I mean, we've seen that. I, I would much rather just see Lars Newbar in the outfield over Dylan Carlson. I, I've that's got what both, it comes I've down got all to three be. of them. I've got O'Neill, Carlson, and Newbar on Sunday specifically would be my outfield construction. I think that's your best see, defensive I would, I would outfield. Put, I would put Walker in there. I want to see Walker more than I want to see Carlson. Got Walker starting the first two games. Starting I, two I, out of three, I, I think that we have overestimated how much Jordan Walker needs to play. Oh, see, I think he, he needs to play what he's been playing. I, I don't want to see him going only two of three, two of three, three of four. Like, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you've got next week zero off days. If he gets one off day on a Sunday game after a Saturday, there's nothing wrong with that. He can pinch hit later on in the game. He's still going to get, like, in this seven-game stretch where they're in Seattle and San Francisco, he probably starts six of them. That's okay, guys. Like it's I, it's I okay he, to start in my, six my only, out of seven days. My only counter is I don't think he needs a day off on Sunday. Like if he's going to get a day off, I think it's later next week, and I, that's why I just don't. I push back on that. Comes down I, to the performance. So if he looks outmatched, sure, then, you're going to start him. him. I don't have a problem with that. What I'm saying is like O'Neill and Carlson can both start, and maybe Newbar is your DH that day. I I don't care how they go about it. Maybe Jordan Walker is your DH that day instead of putting Nolan Gorman in there because he's worse against right-handed hitters. I'm not trying to get too lost or like mixed up into specific situations here because we're three days away from that. But I do want to see more of Carlson and O'Neill in that game specifically. And I think they need to figure out a way to keep those guys involved in the lineup regularly. You got a lot of dudes that are crunched for playing time right now. Newport's been awesome since coming back. He needs to be playing basically every day. But we feel the same way about Alec Burleson. We feel the same way about Jordan Walker. And we also want to see what Dylan Carlson can do. And we've seen that Tyler O'Neill, when at his best, can be an MVP level type of performer. Well, that's five guys battling for three spots. At some point, we are going to have to say it's okay for Jordan Walker to get a day. It's okay for Lars Newport to get a day. If we want to see all of these guys... Well, then, yeah, two out of three is probably the way that this thing's going to wor- end up working out. So I, I get maybe it's just me. I, I guess I've just fallen so much lower on Carlson to like I have no interest if I how much I see him. Like, I, I don't need to get Carlson games. I, I feel like I know what he is. He's not going to hit right-handed pitching. I, I'll just see him against lefties. I, like, that's what I know Dylan Carlson to be. So, like, if it's but you're a five-day stretch. You're seeing lefties at a lower rate than any other team in Major League Baseball because your team hits lefties so well. Because you've got Tommy Edmond, you've got Dylan Carlson who hit lefties well, and you also have your big-time bats. They're much better against lefties as well. They're among more, the best in all of Major League I, Baseball. I get it, more lefty impact bats than you do righty impact I, bats. I get it, but Carlson's put himself in this spot, and I think I know what he is against right-handed pitching. Tyler O'Neill. I don't know what Tyler O'Neill is. I'd rather see more of Tyler O'Neill over Dylan Carlson. Over I the think next we seven games, you see on one left-handed pitcher. Yeah, there's the game for Dylan Carlson. Unless there's a day off. See, that's I disagree absolutely with that needed. entirely. You, you would you would not try to experiment with him right-handed against a right-handed. Haven't we experimented Sunday. that within the past though? 
I think you've got better with Carlson, options. No, we've I, seen it with Edmund, Edmund. once, but it, it has been very, very rare. I, I think you have better options against right-handed pitching than Dylan Carlson hitting right-handed. And I would much rather still see those like a large new bar against a guy that even has really good splits against left-handed pitching. I, I think the car, I think the Cardinals are telling us how they feel about Dylan Carlson. And I don't disagree with them. I, I think they know what he is. I don't think they need to give him as much playing time as what some are hollering for. I, I think you know what Dylan Carlson is. I think he's at best maybe a fourth outfielder. I, I just vehemently disagree with that. I mean, we've seen so far this year, how many at-bats does Dylan Carlson have on the season? He's got 38. And I'm supposed to now just say that I know what he is based on 38 at-bats this year and based on a half a, half a season in which he was injury-plagued last year. But his career against righties hasn't been good. Yeah. No, I I understand that. Um, I, I mean that tell. I mean he's had eight hundred and fifty at bats against righties in his career, and we know what he is. Sure, and you haven't seen adjustments this year, in my opinion, against right-handers. Understood. What I'm talking about is a specific situation where you can find out. Hey, in the future, is he just a right-handed hitter? Like I think this is something that the Cardinals should be exploring for, especially Dylan Carlson, but maybe Tommy Edmond as well, given what his struggles have been against right-handed pitching in the past. Now the other day. He had a great day against a righty and a lefty. So he he did it from both sides of the plate. Dylan Carlson in his career has not been particularly good as a left-handed hitter against right-handed pitching. Well, this is an opportunity for the Cardinals to get creative. They think he can be a switch hitter. What if we try this out against specifically a guy that has reverse splits as a right-handed pitcher where he doesn't get righties out very well? What if we try this for a day? What is, the, what is the downside to this of him hitting right-handed against a right-handed pitcher? He goes 0 for 3, and it doesn't go very well, and you say, okay, you know what, he's a switch hitter, and moving forward, he's still going to be our fourth outfielder. I guess it also comes down to him being willing to accept that, too. Sure. And you might not. But if he doesn't, then he doesn't play. So your options are, do you want to play as a right-handed hitter in this lineup, or do you not want to play, and you can sit on the bench? I guess I, I just have no, Dylan I Carlson have, would, I have no interest in seeing it, I guess, is what I, my point would be to it. Like, I, I have no interest in Dylan Carlson hitting right-handed against a right-handed pitcher. But I, why? I think you just have better options, again. I, I think you have better options of putting O'Neal out there and left. Then aren't we potentially wasting an asset? What if he could? What if this maybe is something that could I, be a viable option for I guess, Dylan Carlson? I guess my question would be is, have we ever really seen a switch hitter just convert to one side of the plate and have we have success. i don't have the names for you but it has happened before i, I just don't know if the cardinals want to th- that was a very angry response it felt no uh, because but, i've read about it but i don't remember who the names were to be honest i, I think you dreamed it uh, yeah i think you dreamt it too i uh i think uh i just have no i think right now you have three better outfield options and if o'neill is what they think he is there's four i, I don't see how carl's can start leapfrogging guys i don't even think it is Switching over to the right-handed side of the plate. I think if you were going to do that, you waited too long anyways. I mean, you're getting to the point where you're having to start making major decisions on Carlson's future. Oh, and he should have been doing that in spring training. He should never have been then trying to work on, oh, let's try to get on the left side of the plate. I just think you're at the point now where it's too late in the season to even try it because now these games matter. Now is not the time for really a ton of experimentation. Yeah, I just I totally disagree. Cedric Mullins is one that has done it. Uh, there were others that have done it as well, but Cedric Mullins is the most recent example yeah, of this. They're hitting like 111 DFA'd and are playing over in like Japan. Tucker Barnhart, your boy, was one of them that, that used yeah, to be a nobody Jesus. Wanted him. <laughs> Jesus, are we bringing Coming up Tucker up next, Barnhart? NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. <laughs> We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Guys, it turns out you can't bet on sports if you're a football player. What? Well, you can. You just can't do it, like, specifically from the locker room. That was a lesson that Jameson Williams learned the hard way earlier today. I thought everybody knew that. The native St. Louis in and now Detroit Lions wide receiver has been suspended for six games to open up the 2023 NFL season. Why? Because according to the league, he bet on sports while he was in a team facility. He just had to hop on that Mizzou money line play in the tournament. Now it is important to know. He did so in a different sport. He did not bet on an NFL game, and that is why he got a six-game suspension. Meanwhile, three other players in the NFL today, it was announced that they will be suspended for the entire season. Why? Because they bet on an NFL game. That's smart. That's smart. I always thought that you could bet on NFL games if you're an NFL player. Specifically your own team. Don't you think that these players would eventually learn? Like, you know, after watching, for example, one of the better wide receivers in the NFL not play in 2022 because he was suspended, Calvin Ridley, for a full season after betting on an NFL game. Come on, guys. We got to be better than this. Don't do this. Typically, yes, I'd say you'd think that they'd know better, but obviously not because uh, it's not just there have been plenty of individuals that have bet on sports throughout the history of time and well it doesn't always fare well for those teams and players so uh you think that them sitting there the part that's even more surprising not so much betting on another sport in your locker room which frowned upon but you're probably thinking well it's not football the people that are betting on football while you're on an nfl team like come on anybody knows that what at what point did you say they won't know yeah they will yeah, uh, not great. I I can't say I'm too surprised by it because, like, this kind of stuff pops up all the time. And now that you're seeing uh, more sports gambling legalized across the country, I think you're going to see more and more cases like this pop up. At some point, you would think people would learn. But most of the time, like, these players don't know, like, the... I I don't even know if you'd call this the underbelly of the rule book, even though it feels like common sense. I feel like some of these guys, like the Jameson Williams one, for example, he probably did think, hey, I'm getting away with this. You know, not getting away with this. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not betting on our sport. But he probably didn't fully read the underlying part of the rule book that says, yeah, you can't bet on sports when you're in a facility. So, like, I think that's a big part of what played into that one. The guys that are on a football team bet on a football team. The players know. I can promise you the league has made this very clear what is and is not allowed. Somebody texted in and said, shouldn't Pete Rose be enough for these players? I guarantee all of these guys have no clue who Pete Rose is. Somebody said I have a dynasty team in fantasy football, and I had Ridley and Jamison Williams on that team. That person is a worse BKO than I am. I can only imagine the emoji that you sent over 314. Mm. Shows that there's an emoji, but we don't actually see the emoji. My guess is a middle finger emoji. I was going to go with the poop emoji. (laughs) Be a good one. So as we continue with some NFL quick hitters, did you guys see the story on Tua Vailoa that came out yesterday? So, according to him, he considered retirement after multiple stints in the concussion protocol last season. He said, quote, I considered it for a time. I sat down with my family. I sat down with my wife. We had those conversations. But it would be really hard for me to walk away from this game with how old I am, with my son. I've always dreamed of playing for as long as I could to where my son knew exactly what he was actually watching, that he's watching his dad play in the NFL. It's my health. It's my body, and I feel like this is best for me and my family. Now, Tua is 25 years old. He has a young son that, like he said, he's trying to have him watch him in the NFL. Man, 
I don't know if you feel this way as well. I know we've seen this in the NHL. We've seen this in other sports where you're watching somebody and you just say, man, I I just pray they don't get hit wrong. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really hard for me to watch the Dolphins this year and not every time that he gets hit wonder, is this the one that's going to do it? And I know that's kind of a morbid way to watch the league, but it's hard for me not to, especially after hearing these comments from Tua, man. If like three years ago, I would have heard that and been like, yeah, I could see where he's coming from. But like once you have kids, when he said that, the first thing I thought of is I'd rather be there for my kids and not have more problems in the future than play long enough for my kid to see me play in the NFL because there's going to be tape of that. I I mean, look, it's his decision, and I can understand it. That would be a very difficult thing to do if you had all of that talent and stepped away from a game that you haven't even been able to prove it. But two concussions in one season. I I mean, I've had conversations like with Paul Correa, who had career-ending concussions, and hear about the, the issues that he still has because of all of those. It's like once you have kids, you think of it a different way, and it's like, oh, my gosh. It's like, man, I, I think I would rather be there healthy for my kids than worry about them seeing me play in the NFL. Yeah, and the part that makes it tough for me is it's not even like he had concussions where I was like, whoa, when did he get that? I didn't even see it. I mean, he was the one that had the concussion where he started walking and then fell, and then I think he was the one that also where he got hit, and uh, his fingers ended up getting crossed because he was uh, hit so hard and ended up with the concussion. I think that was on Thursday Night Football, if I remember correctly. So that because you've seen him and seen that his have been – pretty severe in terms of just what you can see with the eye makes it even more alarming and more uh to bk's point almost tougher to watch and say man i really hope he doesn't get get hit hard and it's it's a different injury and this one's more serious in terms of it's dealing with the brain but it feels a lot like when alex smith went back into the game after recovering from his uh major leg injury that he had i was tense every time i watched him drop back in the nfl because i I was so worried i mean especially watching the video of and the documentary of how his life almost ended yep oh gosh all right final thing here as we go through some nfl quick hitters The S2 test, now you may be aware of this now. It's gotten a lot of notoriety, specifically with Bryce Young, who apparently performed as well on this as you possibly can. (laughs) For those that aren't familiar, this is a cognition test, and basically it's testing responsiveness. Major League Baseball has been using this for a number of years now for prospects. They'll take it and it... It's like, hey, uh, which of these shapes was different? Like that kind of stuff, right? Where it it flashes something and then you have to be able to immediately recognize it. So it's something that the league is using to test the cognition for quarterbacks specifically. And Bob McGinn, who has been a reporter in the NFL for years up in Wisconsin, he now writes for GoLongTD.com. He released the full results from the quarterbacks in this year's class. Bryce Young scored a 98%, which is incredible on this test. Will Levis was at 93%. Anthony Richardson was at 79%. Hinden Hooker was at 46%. Oh, my God. CJ Stroud was at 18%. <sighs> now, yikes. he added this quote from an NFL executive. Quote, if you get a high score as a quarterback, it is not suggesting that you're going to be a great player. But if you get a low score, it's 100% with what we've seen so far. None of the quarterbacks that got a low score went on to become good NFL football players. Do you have any names of the guys with low scores? I don't. They didn't put any late names on Mm -hmm. there? Man. We have heard a lot in recent days and weeks about C.J. Stroud falling on NFL draft mock drafts and the NFL draft boards around the league and how the NFL is not as high on C.J. Stroud as we are on the outside. 
There has also been some buzz that Will Levis is really high on the Indianapolis Colts draft board. In fact, I heard, I think it was DJ, Daniel Jeremiah the other day say they have Will Levis ranked above Bryce Young. He's their number one quarterback in this year's draft. When you see this, when you hear what we have recently, does it make you question if C.J. Stroud might be in for a tumble on draft? Yes, especially with the quote of 100%. It shows that when you've got a low score that you don't have success in the NFL. And I mean, it's not just like a low score. It's 18% low score. Like, yeah, it's very bad. It sounds like me in history class throughout the years. It's concerning with C.J. Stroud. Now it all makes sense that he continues to drop and What will be intriguing with that is, does he drop so far that a team that gives him the opportunity to work behind a successful quarterback that they have in place to work with C.J. Stroud so he can improve his game? Or does a bad team take him and he just struggles? Yeah, I I don't know, man. This is one of those things that it's really hard for me to have a strong answer on it based on just this one thing, this one number that we have now seen. I watched C.J. Stroud play in college, and he was pretty damn good, man. So maybe his cognitive ability is going to become a problem in the NFL where he's not able to recognize things as quickly. It's possible. I don't know. But when you see something like this and you hear the things that we have heard about C.J. not being as high on NFL boards as, as we thought he would be, it does make you pause and say, hmm, Maybe he is going to fall a little bit further. And if he does, honestly, if I'm one of those teams that's in like the 10 to 12 range, or if I'm the Titans, for example, I think that's something where I actually consider him if he is falling. And I say, you know what? Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe the 100% fail rate is real. But for New England, for Houston at 12, for Tennessee at 11, I think it's worth the risk. For Atlanta at 8, if he's there longer than we're expecting, I think it's worth the risk given how great he was in college. I'm trying to like think of teams to where all of these guys are going to be an outlier in some regard. Bryce Young is like 5'10 and a buck 75. Uh, Anthony Richardson has started 13 college football games. CJ Stroud has a really low test score on this. All of them, you're betting against the odds previously working out for you. The best spot that I can think of right now would be Detroit if they could select him because it gives you an opportunity. Not that Jared Goff is going to be the best I coach. Say, I don't know how good I, he would be. I would believe in Dan Campbell of getting the best out of Jared Goff and you're giving CJ Stroud the luxury of not thinking about starting, but watching the game in a different aspect rather than if Houston takes him or Arizona takes him or any of these teams in the top five, you're, if Indianapolis takes him, you're setting him up for disaster. If this is a problem with CJ Stroud, I, I could see where Stroud would have kind of some, golf tendencies in terms of being a good uh, arm slinger, be able to throw for yards, but like anytime there's like pressure in his face would really struggle like that. I could see Stroud being very Jared Goff like and we've seen golf has had success in the right offense when it was with the Rams, when it's been here with Detroit, when there's weapons around him. So I could see that I, I do think he is going to be in for a tumble on draft. I, I haven't I I didn't like him coming out of the out of college. I, I wasn't as impressed as you guys were with C.J. Stroud. I, I thought the only game he played well in this year was that Georgia. against Georgia. Otherwise, like everything else was pretty just pretty damn good team to play good I, against, though. It's <laughs> true, but like he was not good against Michigan. He was not good in some of these other games in which he should be putting up serious numbers. I wasn't that impressed with Stroud coming out of draft night. That's why I always thought it was weird that he was projected to go one to the Panthers over Bryce Young. Somebody on the text line said, you guys are saying that Stroud will be in the 10 to 15 pick range because of one test. Have you watched him play? He has two years of tape, but one test now, you guys are foolish. The draft process is three weeks too long. This is not my belief this is the NFL's standards of what they're looking for in quarterbacks and this test has become a really important part of the process 
I, they might be overestimating the importance of this test. They very well may be. But if he ends up falling, I, it'll be interesting to see. Somebody else from the 618 says, guys, I don't think cognitive efficiency improves as an adult. That is something that is worth noting. Like, I'm not sure that this changes based can, on him sitting back for a year. I can speak to that. It, it doesn't get better as you get older. Coming up next, <laughs> nobody in the Blues defensive core can have this high of a grade. We'll explain next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Number one defensemen are hard to come by. (laughs) They are so hard to come by in the NHL. Uh, So you better start getting your scouts uh, working overtime to try and find somebody that they can identify early on that can, that can turn into a number one defenseman because uh, if, if you found one, you're not giving them up that easily, that's for sure. That was Brendan Burke on with us earlier in the season alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. The Blues defense was not great this year. What? Just leave it at that. Says who? Says the athletic. Jeremy Rutherford <laughs> put together his grades for the Blues this season. He put together the grades for the defensemen, the goalies, and for the coach and general manager. He did that earlier today. He put together his grades for the forwards. I'll be honest, I didn't have a significant take on the forwards. I thought JR was correct and spot on in his analysis. So you can go read that over at The Athletic. Hold him accountable. Make sure you call him out on all the bad grades. Well, let's get to the defensemen. (laughs) Because I think there are some questionable decisions here from JR. Oh, He gave Justin Falk a B-plus for his season. He wrote, Falk was by far the Blues' best defenseman this season. He averaged a team-high 23 minutes of ice time per game. He was on the ice for more 5-on-5 goals than any other defenseman by a wide margin. He played in all 82 games for just the third time in his career. He also set new career highs in assists and points this year with 39 and 50, respectively. He gave him a B-plus for his year. Alex, I just have a hard and fast rule. When you have a defensive core as porous as the Blues this season, nobody in the top four earns more than a B. Nobody. So for me, Justin Falk this year, and I think there were times, especially in the first half of the season, I thought he was much better in the second half. In the first half of the season, I thought he was a liability at times defensively. I would give him a B- minus at best for his season. So I am a little lower than Jeremy Rutherford on that, in that regard. Where are you at on Justin Falk's season? Uh, um, I would have had Justin Falk at a C because as great as he played down the second half of the season, which he did because in terms of defensemen in the NHL, he was one of the best in terms of point production and his plus minus rating was one of the best, which I know people can take for with a grain of salt. But I mean, he went from having like a minus 23 to having a minus four on the regular season. So he was better. But I can't justify anybody on this defense above a C, specifically in Justin Falk, because the amount of goals that he created, yes, but he was also a part of a group that played over 20 minutes a night consistently that saw the goal numbers just skyrocket in terms of goals allowed. And I was going to look this up and see uh, what his expected goals allowed were on the ice. And according to Money Puck, he was one of the uh, bottom three teams on the Blues roster. So that's why I just I would give him a C maybe a C plus because of what he provided down the second half, 
but B would be stretching it for me for Justin Falk. I'm kind of with Alex. I, I, I think you can't really give anybody higher than a C-plus on this team except for Callie Rose on the defensive side of things. I, I, I was not impressed with much of the season for Justin Falk. Yes, he played better near the end of the year for the St. Louis Blues, but, I mean, they were out of it at that point. It was kind of more free playing in terms of, you know, there's no pressure on us. We're not really playing for anything here. Early on in the year, to me, grades a lot heavier because those games mattered. That was when a team's trying to find a way to get out of the losing streaks that they were on, try and climb back into the playoff picture. And during that stretch, I just did not think he was very good for the St. Louis Blues. So I would give him a C at best. His own ice expected goals against per 60 star VK was 3.49. Krug, Bortuzzo, and Scandella had higher in his on ice high danger shot attempts against 3.69. The only person that was worse than him was Tori Krug. Yeah, if you're looking at a percentage like expected goals for percentage, it was at 43%, which was second lowest on the team behind only Marco Scandella. If you're looking at his high danger, chances for percentage was at 40%. Again, second worst on the team behind only Marco Scandella. His underlying numbers were really not good. All right. The guys that he was very critical of, and I think fairly so. Nick Letty gave him a D minus. Tory Krug, an F. Complete failure of a season, according to Jeremy Rutherford. And Colton Pareko, a D minus. Do you think those for the other four top four defensemen are fair? First of all, no. Colton Pareko should be an A plus. Of course. I was just waiting because I'm sure somebody out there was hoping I'd say that. No, Colton Pareko was very fair. Nick Letty was very fair, in my opinion, mostly because of the amount of goals that were going in. And then, of course, the penalty kill, because those two guys spent a majority of the time on the penalty kill, which was one of the worst. Um, And then the power play with Tori Krug. I I mean, look... Tory Krug last season, I thought was very consistent for the Blues and not making it worth the contract, but at least closer to that conversation. But an F this season, I believe, is apt for Tory Krug. Now, this is nothing against him. He can't control this, but the injuries were a major part of why he got a fail in my eyes. And then the power play. I mean, Tory Krug is a power play quarterback. Tory Krug is a offensive defenseman. And there was no offense with him, and the power play struggled with that. So, yeah, I believe out of as as how harsh that sounds, I believe he was the one that probably deserved the F out of everybody on the team. I, I agree with everything here that JR has to say. I, I maybe lean maybe towards giving an F to Nick Letty just because, like, but I, I think Agreed. it's a little unfair because I, I, maybe it's not unfair, but he was on the ice. Of, yeah, he's put in a bad spot because he's not a number one defense or not a guy that should be on a top, top pair. pair. Yeah. And, He's forced to play that role here with the St. Louis Blues. But I agree with all these. I mean, Tory Krug was definitely by far the most disappointing St. Louis Blue this season. Colton Pareko, had it not been for kind of his second-half resurgence, then I think he would have Same an as F Justin as Falk. well. And for, for Nick Letty, to me, it, it just was – I there were multiple times this year that I was able to point out and go, man, that's partly on Nick Letty why that goal ends up going in the back of the net. And there was never really a – Hey, you know, Nick Letty's been playing well. I, I never felt like that came out of my mouth during the blue season. From the 314, JR is more qualified to give these grades than any of you clowns. Stop hating him there. Agreed. However, his grade for uh, the goalie this year, completely disagree with it. He gave Jordan Bennington a B on the season, Alex. Oh, oh here we go. This is where I get heated with BK. Quote, when I wrote that Bennington was my pick for the Blues MVP this season, many took it to mean he had a great season. This was a bad season for the Blues. So whoever you decide to pick, it doesn't mean that they were great individually. Bennington's 895 save percentage continued a precipitous career drop, yes. But to anybody that actually watched the games, you know he was hardly the problem. Bingo. 
I actually agree with the entirety of what he just said there. I don't think that Jordan Bennington was the problem for the Blues this season. You turn. I didn't expect it. I thought I was going to get angry this segment. I also think he wasn't necessarily <laughs> the solution and for the Blues this season. back. Okay. And so therefore, I would give him a C. I thought it was a, a passable season for Jordan Bennington. I don't think he was atrocious. I think there were nights where he looked amazing. I think some of the saves that he made reminded me of what he looked like in the postseason last year. I think Jordan Bennington is a 45 to 50 game starter in the regular season. And he's a guy that when you get into the playoffs, you trust him to raise his game to a new level. And you feel like because he's in net, you have a chance to win the Stanley Cup. I don't think he was a failure. I don't think he was a D. He deserves a passing grade because what was in front of him was unacceptable for the vast majority of this season. I would also add, though, that given some of the antics, given that there were times where you wish that you had a better option potentially in net, I can't give him a B. I I cannot go that high. And I do not agree, by the way. And listen, I'm not like calling out JR. I love JR. I think there is very few people whose opinions I trust more on hockey than Jeremy Rutherford. But I think Pavel Buchnevich was very clearly this team's best player this season. I know he missed games, but he would be my pick for MVP. Jordan Bennington, for me, would have gotten a C. Yeah, Jordan Bennington was the MVP, in my opinion, because to me, Buchnevich is number two, but you can't be an MVP if you only play 60 games in the season. You can't be an MVP if you're not there when the team absolutely needs you, and Bennington was that guy every single game. man. Cool. But uh, How many games did Jordan Bennington play? Uh, 50, 60, and there were only six goaltenders that played more than him. Wow. And there were only four goaltenders that saw more shots than he did. And those guys had better goals against and save percentages, but go ahead and look at their defense in front of them and then <laughs> compare the two. Sorry, I muted my mic to try and protect him, and that didn't work there. My apologies. I heard what you said. Thanks, though. thanks. No, you didn't. Ryder did. But th- he... he I mean, Alex I know it's very upset. I, I am. I'm, I'm fired up because I know people like, oh, uh, what are you talking about? I watch the game. Cool. You, you might not be watching it the way that you need to, because Jordan Bennington, there were, I would say, five, maybe a handful of games this season where I watched and said, oh, their goalie didn't give them a chance to win. Every other time, which that's 55 starts for Jordan Bennington this season, I said he gave them every opportunity to win that hockey game, and he could not overcome the amount of miscues in the own zone, the sprawling saves that you would see. Jordan Bennington was a workhorse this season, probably worked more than he needed to or should because, yeah, I'm with you, BK. 50 games is probably my sweet spot for Jordan Bennington because he's not a Connor Hellebuck. He's not an Andre Vasilevsky in the regular season. Postseason, I believe he's better than those, not Vasilevsky, better than Hellebuck. But he was the MVP of your team this season because this could have been an Anaheim Duck season without Jordan Bennington. Coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. junk drawer. Alex, did you know that T-Bone's been dreaming about me? All right, I'm out. I can't do this segment today, guys. What? You dreaming? 
Dream yeah. a little dream. No. T-Bone, why am I in oh, your Mr. dreams? Sandman. I don't know. I walked in today. It felt like a safe space in the office, though. No, but there's now no we safe know. spaces. I tweeted out a text that I received from BK when we first started the show together. There's no safe spaces. No. It's Clearly. all for the air. We know that. Yeah. You guys know that. If why I have something embarrassing <laughs> in my life. We didn't have to phrase it the way we did, Question, though. Tanner. Was T-Bone's he wearing a banana hammock? No. I don't remember what he was wearing. <laughs> was he coughing? Because that's <laughs> how I picture my BK. I mean, we're just going to we're talk, just gonna to me, talk about the dream. Shout out Derek Gould. You were in the dream too, my man. <laughs> was I in the dream? No, you were not. <laughs> oh. John, on, who follows me on Twitter, now he was in the why, dream. Why wasn't I in your dream, man? Not, not him personally. He was mentioned. Was, was, I, T-Bone, was I in your dream? Walked in the, or I walked in today and T-Bone was already here. Oh, no, T-Bone walked in today too and was very upset. Yeah. And he, I, I say, hey guys, how you doing? It's kind of what I do and when I walk in. He smacked my chair. Let's make sure we get oh, all the details. your leg. Yeah. Not a fan. And T-Bone said... I'm mad at you. So what what did I do, buddy? He called me unprofessional in my dream. And, and I was he, still upset about when I woke up this morning. I woke up angry. He said, well, I, I dreamed about you last night. So that's that's quite interesting. Not the first time I've heard that. But, you know, explain that a little bit. Let's flesh this out. Whoa. And T-Bone said, well. No, nah, man, I don't want to talk about it. I had a dream about you last night, and you made me angry, and I woke up, and I was still angry at you, but yeah. this time not in my dream, in real life. Yeah. You ever have those dreams? <laughs> my no, wife my does. Wife does. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say that I have them a whole lot, but my wife has certainly had them. What did I do in your dream, buddy? You called me unprofessional. I don't even know what we were talking about. I don't even know why gold was in the dream, to be <laughs> honest with you, and why we were on an escalator and where the hell we were. But we were talking about... Yeah, what Cardinals kind of baseball dreams are you having, man? We were You're talking on an baseball because you know I'm not a true baseball fan. We were talking baseball though, and for whatever reason, BK called me unprofessional, and it just irked me the wrong way. And, and I have I have no idea why I had this dream. I, I don't I really have no idea what the the full like presence of the dream was about. All right, well I just remember being called unprofessional, and it irked me, and I woke up angry. Let's break this down then. Has B, let's have our therapy session right now. Has BK done things here yes. that has leaked into your personal life? Oh. Mm. Like does he, does he does he anger you here, but you feel like you can't say it out loud because it would be unprofessional. And so you take it home with you. I'm gonna say no while my head goes up and down. Okay, yeah. okay. And then do you like find yourself at times when BK sends you text messages in the evening? That's a, oh, God. Just not going to respond. I don't think I had one of those moments last night. Now, like earlier, when he was like, I don't remember what he said, but he phrased it Are there very times angrily. Of Carlson should hit from the right side. I vehemently disagree. Where he acts like his opinion's more important than yours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you might be Go dreaming about him out. too. Get it out, boys. Oh, no, I, I, I used to. And then I inceptioned him in my own head. Yeah, but now you said you don't dream anymore. Now I just don't dream. Yeah, I don't yeah. want that to happen because I have melatonin, man. It works great. <laughs> you guys are lucky that you have me. Oh, see, this, is this the, is this yeah. how you go home and get angry? Yeah. Just keep that in mind. You're gonna go far if you stick with me. I'm probably gonna try and lay down tonight. And all I'm gonna have is BK. You're lucky you have me. You're lucky you have me. What'll be creepy is when head. he's there in person whispering it to you. <laughs> Outside your patio door, you're lucky you have me. You just keep in mind. But if Sca- you stick with the me, scary, the scary part is, is, is it's not the first time BK's been in one of my dreams. <laughs> I don't really know how to respond to that no. one, and I'm, I don't want to flush that one out. How often do you dream about him, man? I, know, I only know it happened one other time. 
What happened in that dream? Don't. I don't know. I, it was we were that one involved the banana hammock. No, no. You know, I I had a dream about BK when he wore that Snow White princess outfit, and I vomited. God, honestly, that if that was in one. my dream, that was a no, tough it one. wouldn't have been better. No. That was a tough one. Why do you feel like that we need to stick with you, BK? Because I've got you heading in the right direction, boys. Yeah? Really? Because yep. my sleep is uh, apparently struggling. Oh. I think if you guys stick with me, professionally speaking, I can't speak to personally <laughs> like that. From the 636, if BK has offended you, you may be entitled to compensation. <laughs> professionally speaking... The people that stick with me, they go on to do some good things. Anthony Stalter, I was on his show for... Oh, now you're taking credit for Anthony Stalter. Absolutely. For three months, guess what happens? Straight up to the big leagues. Mm -hmm. He gets called up to the afternoon show. Mm -hmm. Jamie Rivers, they put him in that seat right there. Right there, Alex. For a year. For a year with the big guy to your left. And guess what he gets? Call up to the big boys. He goes up to the fast lane. I do a few shows with Kerry Davis. Guess what happens with Kerry? He gets called up to the big leagues. He's on the morning show. Now, don't ask me if this has offended me in any way, shape, or form that I'm not the one that gets called up. I was going to say, this sounds more like the always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Yeah. Somebody brings up another person that I previously worked with. While I was here, everything was going well. (laughs) That's all I can say. A lot of people you worked with that I... Think the of the other show side that of the I argument. was at in Kansas City. I believe he's now the highest paid person at that station. Things are going well. He's you guys just stick Kansas with City. me. One of these days, professionally, things will go well for you guys. And you won't have to deal with me anymore. Oh, God. Somebody just texted in the picture of BK in his dress. I'm out. I'm gonna go, I, have, I have a question. I'll lie <laughs> in your phone. Somebody said so everybody else gets called up to the big leagues and BK stays down in the minors eating pe- peanut butter and jelly for the rest of his life. That yeah, is true. If BK ever offended you, you might have symptoms of diarrhea, of uh, headaches, uh, abdominal of pain. Might, you might dream of them. Um, loose bowels probably happens in that conversation, too, and could cause death. It's like that bad medicine you don't want to take. But he said, T-Bone, stick with BK, and by the next pandemic, you'll be you'll be guaranteed to get a promotion. All right. Be There's some that. truth to that. Can we find a way to get him out of my dream cell? Because it's weird. <laughs> That's more of a you I problem, feel like man. Hey, if you've got a number for somebody that can help T-Bone with his uh, with his dream yeah, problem. It's called melatonin. Please go ahead and send that in on the text line. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. I do find it very interesting that yesterday was 420 and T-Bone had these, these vivid dreams of me. I'm Coming up next, the are MLB teams sticking to a script too often? We'll talk about it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. We got this from the 636. Guys, I'm turning off the radio now. You guys are too dumb to listen to. Just give it a sec. I'll be even dumber here in a moment. Somebody texted in a number that will call you in the middle of your dream to interrupt you. Oh, that's fantastic. Tanner, call this. So earlier today I was listening to the morning show (laughs) and Randy Carricker said something that I heard and I was like, man, 
and this is no no shot against Randy whatsoever. I've seen a lot of this on social media about how the Cardinals approach uh, their lineup, how the Cardinals approach managing the games nowadays. And I just said, man, I, I think we need to take some time to just kind of go over this. So here's what Randy Carricker said earlier today on the morning show about how the lineups are put together, how decisions are made, and whether or not a manager actually has autonomy of the job that he's trying to go about. I think what will happen is this will bring the manager back into the game. The manager like Whitey Herzog or Tony yes. Larusa that was thinking two, two innings ahead and yeah. didn't have to go off a script and be reactive rather than proactive. The good managers, the people like Tito Francona, the people like Buck Showalter, they're, they're managing the game themselves. Brian mm-hmm. Snitker, they don't have to worry about a script. If you're working a couple of innings ahead or an inning ahead, you don't have to worry about time. If you're reactive then you don't know how much time there is for a a, a replay or, or or to get a pitcher up. It, it, you should already yes. have it in your mind. And the pitcher, yes. by the way, recording always says, I knew every game we played, when, who I was going to face and at what point in the game I was going to face him. So I feel like there's a couple of different things that are taking place there. And the moral of the story is basically like this all comes back to the 2 o'clock meeting that everybody talks about, where they say, hey, Ollie Marmel's uh, lineup is set in place for him by... John Mosellock yeah, and Michael Gersh, Gersh, Gersh and all the analytics people. Those are the people that are actually doing the job that we think Ollie Marmel's doing, and he's just a puppet. We've heard it a million different times in a million different ways, and this is just one new way to put it. Alex, I've grown frustrated by this because it's simply not true. Like, does the front office have input in what the decisions are that are taking place? Sure, of course they do. Michael Gersh and his analytics side of things, like that... That piece of the front office gives information to Ollie Marmel every day. It is placed on his desk so that way he has it at his disposal. He then speaks to the training staff to find out, hey, who is where? Who needs some time? Who who is down tonight in our bullpen? What do the guys look like? Like, hey, Brendan Donovan showed up with an infection in his leg. He needs to be off tonight. We need to do something about that. Uh, Alec Burleson, what's going on with his leg? Is he ready to go? Oh, he's probably not good for the field. He could play DH, though, for you. If you needed him to, he can be in the lineup tonight. Uh, Hey, this is probably the time where we need to get a day for Arenado or Paul Goldschmidt. These kinds of things, yes, super important. That comes from the training staff. And then he talks to his coaches. His coaches will then inform his decisions based on what they're seeing, whether it's Turner Ward who's saying, hey, I'm seeing this from a swing. I think he's getting back on track. Or maybe he's going to the pitching coaches where Dusty Blake's saying, hey, I think against this lineup because they've got two lefties back to back, if we have to go to somebody in the sixth inning, this is a spot where Andre Pallante or Hennessy Cabrera, whoever, would be a good pl- person to go to in this kind of a situation. They go through all of that stuff pregame. That's smart. What we do prior to our show, we don't have an exact exact mapping out of like minute by minute what we are going to be doing, but we've got a plan as to what the show is going to look like. If you're in sales and you have benchmarks that you have to hit, whether it's during the day or over the course of a month, yeah, of course you've got a plan of who you're going to call, when you're going to call, and kind of the idea of what you're trying to sell them, right? So... I'm a little confused by when this became a bad thing for a manager to plan accordingly. Ollie Marmel today has an idea of what his schedule looks like for the next week. During this 10-game road trip, I bet you today it's not completely planned. It's not written in pen. 
but he's got a pretty good idea of who's going to be in the starting lineup in a best-case scenario in each of the next 10, 10 games. He's got it mapped up. That's going to change. There will be injuries that take place. There will be guys that don't perform the way that they expected to. There will be guys like Jordan Walker where he goes on a 12-game hitting streak to start out the season, and maybe there was a planned off day that he's not going to take because he's on a, in the middle of a 12-game hitting streak. So I guess I'll, I say all of that to say this. Not every decision that Ollie Marmol makes, I agree with. But this notion that him pre-planning things prior to the game is a bad thing, I could not disagree with that any stronger. And I think if people don't believe that that's also happening with Brian Snitker or with any of the other great managers across Major League Baseball, you're kidding yourself. Every one of these managers is taking into account other information from other pieces of the organization, because if they weren't, they wouldn't be in that job in 2023. Yeah, I I mean, just hearing that audio again, the first thing I thought of was, okay, he's talking about, you know, having a pitcher up ready to go when things start to go haywire. And yeah, that's how you can go off script. And, And the most recent one that so many people were arguing were, was the Jack Flaherty start, right? Where they yanked him out of that game. And of course, Palante comes in and you get the bases loaded grand slam. And then people are like, oh, why'd you take Flaherty out in that spot? Like that's going, I don't even want to say that's going off script or that's scripted there. But in games are very different than pre-games. And pre-games, you're going to pre-plan everything because you got to know who's available for us. Is this guy fatigued? Does this guy need a day off? What about this guy? And then you bring the analytics into this one or the information if people don't like the word analytics. That's the pre-planning stuff. But even when you're in games, if it looks too scripted to people, That's because there's tons and tons and tons of information that back what that individual is thinking in that spot. The the spot for me when, and like this goes into other sports too, like hockey, you pre-plan when you're going to use goaltenders because you got to know guys get certain days off. You pre-plan if something pops up and a guy's not feeling right. And then the in-game portion of it happens. But the off-script stuff that happens in-game, that's postseason. That's where the (laughs) gut feel comes into play. But in the regular season, you not only have to manage a game for 162, you got to manage 26 individuals on that roster for 162 games. So, yeah, there's got to be a lot of pre-planning that takes place before you get into those games. Yeah, and, and the, I'm glad you mentioned the Jack Flirty one because I, I don't think there was definitely no script for what happened in that game. There's no script that said before the game that, okay, here's what's going to happen when we try to get Flirty out there for the seventh, gives up a home run, and then there's a double, and then there's a walk, and then we're going to plan for Palante to come in against a left-handed batter. No, that was reacting on... Uh, they may have had a script of, okay, if Jack goes five, here's how we kind of want to piece things together. If yeah. Jack goes six, here's how we're going to piece it together. Jack can go seven, here's where we're going to piece things together. But then it all kind of changes on the fly, and Ollie Marmol has to react to it on the fly of when he gives up the leadoff home run, and then the runners are at second and third, and then he's got to go, okay, now wh- where is our best matchup? He is still using the numbers that he has seen that have been given to him, but it's not scripted. It's not said, okay, second and third against a left-handed batter, you got to turn to Palante. No, he said at the time that, honestly, Hennessy Cabrera probably made more sense at that spot because he has better numbers against lefties so far but this year. But he had year. to get somebody at the beginning of the game because ready. there's a pitch clock now and things happen fast. Yes. And so he is now adjusting. Honestly, I think this is in part a reaction to what happened last year in the playoffs where they weren't prepared because they didn't want to have somebody up when they started the innings potentially to uh, make the starting pitcher mad, for example. Um, I, I don't think Jack was thrilled by the fact that when he looked back, he saw somebody warming in the bullpen. 
That's the reality of what Major League Baseball is in 2023 with the pitch clock. Things happen so quickly that you don't have time to get a guy ready if you don't have them ready to go at the beginning of an inning. So that is why that's taking place. Somebody from the 314 says, if all of this is true, then why did the lineup construction change so much between Schilt and Ollie Marmel? Because it's a different manager. It's a different manager. And I think this (laughs) speaks to exactly what we're talking about. Mike Schilt had the autonomy to determine how he would like to construct his lineup. He's the manager. That's his job. He's getting the same information. He goes about using it differently than Ollie Marmel does. And you can agree or disagree with either approach. That is totally reasonable. If you disagree with the way that Ollie Marmel goes about the job, that's totally cool. I I have my thoughts about it. You can have your thoughts about it. That's what makes baseball great. But he views it differently than Mike Schilt did. And I would imagine he voiced those differences in those meetings that he had with Mike Schilt when he was his bench coach. And Mike Schilt looked at it differently. He said, ah, Tommy Edmonds, my leadoff guy. I'm batting him leadoff. I don't care who the opposing pitcher is. Tommy Edmonds batting leadoff. I'm going to go with Matt Carpenter batting sixth because Matt Carpenter's my guy. That was the way he went about it. Ollie goes about it a little differently. So that that's why it is so much different. Um, somebody on the text line as well, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line uh, to get involved in the show. BK Mo does have a group of analytics nerds that look at the swing paths of the hitters, the pitchers, the playing, all of these different things. I've heard this from very good sources. I know someone who is in Mo's assistant. I think that's kind of what we're saying here. Like, Mo absolutely, and Gersh, has a department along with every other team in Major League Baseball that looks into the analytics of everything. And those help to inform the decisions in game. Like T-Bone was just saying, here's what we've got. We've got a couple of lefties coming up. Who are our best options against them? Well, you got a few different options in that spot. You've got Andre Pallante. You've got Hennessy Cabrera. Who was the other, the third one at the time? Zach Thompson was down, I think, on that day. Yeah. So it's really those two options. Which one would we rather go to here? Well, we've got runners on. Andre Pallante on the ground 70% of the time. We need a double play ball. Our best option here is probably Andre Pallante. So that's what they went with. Those are the kinds of things that they're going through there. But again, it comes back to like when I hear this notion of teams sticking to a script, they have a pre-planned process of what things should look like in a best case scenario. They have prepared for certain situations. There's no such thing as a script in live sporting events, though. It doesn't exist. So I, I, I've seen that a lot places. And I think that we needed to spend a little bit of time today to try to push back on. I don't know where this narrative came from or when it became a thing, but it's not a thing. It's not anything that is real. Um, And if you saw that on some dark web spot, you can tell them to take it back to wherever that's worth. Coming up next. What kind of dark web are you on, man? Is Mizzou (laughs) taking their formula from basketball last year to a new level? I sure think so. Final four bound. Here we go. Let's talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Mizzou basketball is back alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. T-Bone's going to try to kill our vibe. I'm not going to let him. I'm helping you prepare for a worst case scenario. I'm kind of in between on this one. I'm going to ride the BK and Ferrario fence here. Alex, over the last few weeks, Mizzou's gone into the portal 
and they pulled out some big fish. They got John Tanji. He's the first one that committed to Mizzou. He's from Colorado State. He's a very good scorer. He's a pretty good wing defender as well. Second guy they got, Tamar Bates, a Missouri native. He went to Indiana, had a couple of seasons there. Is a very good wing defender and can shoot the basketball pretty well as well. Then they got their third player. This came yesterday. Caleb Love. A gentleman by the name of Caleb Grill from Iowa State. I he do is love one the of, grill. He's one of the better pure like sharpshooters in all of college basketball. Almost 80% of his shot attempts last year came from beyond the three-point line. Basically, he's going to play the Des Moines Hodge role. Alex, the reason why I find this to be so interesting, and there's still in a few others, Matthew Cleveland, a former five-star out of Florida State who scored 12 points per game last year for FSU. Caden uh, Shedrick is another guy that they're in on a big man from Virginia. He's currently on a visit to Duke. Don't love that possibility because <laughs> probably going to end up at Duke. And then Jamarian Sharp, who we talked about a lot last year. He's the seven foot five guy from Western Kentucky. who's at least putting his name right now into the NBA draft <clears throat> possibilities. The reason why I find all of this to be so interesting. Look at the schools that we're talking about. Iowa state, Indiana, Colorado state, FSU, Virginia. We're talking about big name schools with guys that had real pedigree as four and five star recruits previously. Now look at the players that they brought in last year Milwaukee, Cleveland State, Northern Iowa, uh, another one from Cleveland State, Junior College. They brought in one guy from Clemson, and he was the only Power Five transfer that they brought in last year. Who was the Juco guy? Uh, they had a couple of them. One was Muhammad Diara. The other was your favorite, Sean East. And as we know, all Juco <sighs> athletes are great. And they turned into studs. Alex, what they're trying to do, and then Missouri State with Isaiah Mosley, who didn't end up playing most of the season. What they're trying to do is basically capitalize on what they did a year ago, but with more talented versions of the players that they had last year. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to work out. We saw this with Illinois this year. They had yeah. the same idea. Brought in two really good players from their previous stops, and then it did not come together the way that they were hoping. If it does, though, and I think Dennis Gates has earned the benefit of the doubt based on what happened last year, we might be looking at a similar type of team to what we saw last year, but with more talent on the court, with the ability to get stops when they need to, especially when they play a team like Princeton, for example. You know, I was going to come in this segment and just kind of sit back and let BK work and then you go at it, but I'm sorry, T-Bone, I'm all aboard that hype train. Did you see those names? Pretty damn good. And look, I was very upset that they didn't get love. I'm thinking, how do you miss out on this opportunity right in front of you? I prefer the route that they went. And that's what I was going to ask, because as much as we all wanted to see love with Mizzou, you knew what he was going to be when you brought him in. You were bringing in somebody who had a distinguished role and it wasn't going to be as much of the Dennis Gates, Mizzou team mentality that you just had. All of these guys that you just brought up went from a program where it was in that mindset, and now you're putting it into a situation with the Dennis Gates, who we heard talk about, and who who was it that we interviewed after the uh, tournament talking about how impactful Dennis Gates is? Gary of, Brewer from the Washington yeah, Post. In terms of getting the best out of individual players to make them feel like a group, I mean, to be able to go into the transfer portal and get names from those high-leverage schools and bring them to Mizzou, that's impressive. So, yeah, I'm all aboard the uh, SEC championship hype train there. I, I'm just trying to pump the brakes on the hype train. Don't, man. Because it is one of the toughest tasks is to bring in a uh, – I mean, it's the toughest task no matter what in college basketball, but bring in a new uh, 
new class of in terms of guys transferring in because everybody's used to running the system that they committed to. I, I think that Dennis Gates is a good head coach, but I, I'm just cautious of the tale of, okay, they're going to go on a really deep run here all of a sudden. They're going to go on this deep run because Dennis Gates is going out there and getting all these big power recruits. I think it's going to take time for Dennis Gates to get to that point. I, I don't think he's going to be able to win the SEC and go on a deep run next year. We'll see. I am fascinated to know how his coaching style changes with the pieces that he brings in because I don't think he was coaching what he would prefer to be his system last year. I think what he was coaching last year was, all right, I think this is the best thing that we can possibly do to maximize our team's potential. I think you're right on that part, and that's why I'm excited about this. Mm -hmm. Because if he's able to get in some of the talent that can play a little bit more to his style, I think you're going to see him take his team to a new level. Defensively, last year they had to be hyper-aggressive in order to get stops. Because if they were playing a classic man-on-man defense, they they weren't getting anything. They weren't. They were not getting stops in a, in a normal half court setting. When they did get a turnover, though, they looked like a world beating team because their offense was really good, and they had sets, whether it was after timeouts or just in the half court, where they were going to be able to score with just about anybody else uh, in the country. Defensively, they couldn't get stops. This year, they now have the pieces. Hopefully, fingers crossed to be able to get some more of those stops. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for One's Gotta Go here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And this is PK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points, and you get to pick which one's got to go on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Train Heating and Cooling. Visit traininfo.com. It's hard to stop a train. Count that, that big pan. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for One's Gotta Go. You give us four options in a specific category. We'll tell you which one's gotta go. We'll start with this one, boys. One's gotta go. Fruity Candy Edition. Starburst, Skittles, Sweet Tarts, or Twizzlers. Which one's gotta go? Oh, this is simple. Sweet Tarts gotta go. Really? I've never been a fan of Sweet Tarts. That's the way that I would go with this Starbursts well. are good. The problem with Starbursts are you got like a certain window to eat them. What's your uh, color? Um, I'm a red guy. Yeah, red, pink, yellow, and then orange is last. See, orange is the trashiest of all of them. Definitely yellow. What would you have as the one that's got to go? Me and Alex are on the same page here. I doesn't so happen I, often. I don't mind. Doesn't. I don't mind the sweet tarts. I I am not a fan of Twizzlers at all. Really? I just cannot stand them. I am not Why? a big fan of red licorice. I, any licorice, honestly. I don't know. It just never have been into it. I, is I it cannot. Like strawberry flavored? Well, they got a cherry and strawberry. The one it's that like I like is the one that you peel each string off. Oh, I think that's yeah. the strawberry that one, one. Those are the good I'm ones. Out. My my family brings us every time we go on a family oh, yeah. vacation. It's like. Man, I'm hungry. Can we stop and like get a snack at a gas station? We have Twizzlers. You know what? I'm not hungry anymore. That's a unfortunate way to go about Sounds it. Sounds like I understand how that Texas road trip went last year. One's got to go There's spring a lot of cleaning edition. Things. The attic, the garage, the closet, or the shed. Ooh, Which one's the worst? Spring cleaning? What was the first one? The attic. The attic. Oh, the attic. That'd be worse for BK because he's probably got something living up there. <laughs> yeah, I ain't going up there. Um, I, I That's the raccoon's attic now. I would say the attic because I don't think I've ever once... 
cleaned out my attic. It's just been unfinished. It's been storage, typically boxes that I don't use. I've never gone up into an attic other than when I have to, like, spray in my house. So I would say that's got to go. I think I would go attic, too. I mean, I don't have well, one you don't in my have... apartment, but I when I think attic, like, I'm thinking of the one, like, at my house back home. Like, that thing's big. And, like, that doesn't sound like fun to clean. Like, a shed wouldn't be too bad, I wouldn't think. A closet wouldn't be all that bad. What was the fourth one? The was garage. There's something satisfying the about cleaning up the garage yeah, and shed. Yeah, kind of cluttered and look like a mess. Yeah, I don't want to go up there. Who knows? It could be like BK's. Yeah. There could be anything living up I there. I wish I had an attic that I could, like, use. That would be awesome. Yeah, I don't have one of those. No, you don't. Well, you have an attic that other things use. Yeah, birds. Yeah. Raccoons. Raccoon. Probably other animals. I mean, you could have baby raccoons floating around up there. I'm sure there's going to be some birds that are chirping around in uh, the foreseeable future. BK uh, I'm getting rid of the attic accounts. as well for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> one's got to go alternative cur- alternative careers for BK. An accountant, working in HR, becoming an electrician, or being a personal trainer. Which one's got to go? I mean, it's pretty obvious which one has to go, right? I, the one that would probably get him killed? Yeah, no, but I think that's why it stays because it'd be entertaining to watch him oh, try and try and be on, an man. electrician. We should start a video series of BK fixing it and invite no. him over to my house when I have something go wrong. Oh, and be like, BK, yeah. fix this. I'm glad you said you your house because I don't want your house. <laughs> well, then I'm, I'm glad I'll, you said your house. I'll oversee it. So then when you like start to electrocute yourself, I could stop it. I uh, think the electrician's got to go. You might. Uh, I would die. Yeah, you would die. I, I have what told, do these two things do? I've told my wife this. Like, I feel like I'm getting a little better around the house. And we basically, I basically renovated with the help of my father. Uh, <laughs> my future son's room, the nursery, we put in new flooring. We painted, we redid the closet, we put in a new door. Like, we we really went after it. Put in a new yeah, ceiling fan. We really did it in there. Mm. I will not do anything when it comes to electrical. Not touching it. So being an electrician is not in my future. See, Zero chance it, whatsoever. I've just ventured. I've just ventured into the territory of changing out outlets, and that's stressful in itself. And like, yeah. there's no electrical work. I mean, there is, but it's very little compared to what electricians have to deal I'm with. Keep an electrician in there. What was the? You just want to see BK get electrocuted. <laughs> oh, I think it'd be funny to watch him do it. Um, I think I would get rid of an accountant. That one, that's just a boring job. Are and you I, kidding me? That's all he I, does is make spreadsheets. I know, but look, look at, he's got his glasses on I right know, now. He, he looks like an accountant. The, he fits too perfect into the role. That's why it's out. Somebody said, did you ever fix the door? No. Uh, one's got to go. <laughs> Lettuce, tomato, BK pickles, or cheese. I'm guessing this is on a burger. Lettuce, Lettuce tomato, tomato, pickle, or cheese. This is easy. This is easy. Yeah. Go ahead. Tomato. Oh, well, no, it's not easy. Then. Oh, get it out Mine's of Mine's lettuce. Really? No, no, lettuce on a burger's great. Because there's two types of lettuce you're putting on a burger. It's either the one big head of lettuce that is just obnoxious, like it's more lettuce than burger, or it's the shredded lettuce, which is just nasty in itself. It gets all soggy. It's gross. I can agree with that, but I, I, I like a nice, like, uh, I don't know what you call Crunch? it. Crunch? That's what the tomato's yeah. for. No, no. Get the tomato. What the tomato needs to do is be sent back to the kitchen, mushed up into some ketchup, and put on the side for my fries. I want all of these things on my uh, well, on my burger personally. Them, like the onion, that's the one that I always take off. The lettuce, yeah, tomato, onion, that. pickle, that's typically the, the go-to. I'm out with the onion, but if I'm going to have to get rid of one of these, I would probably get rid of the tomatoes as well. Just more likely to make it mushy. I don't yeah. need that. Uh, final thing here. One's got to go. People that have surpassed BK while he's been working at 101 ESPN. Jamie Rivers, Anthony Stalter, the janitor, or the player to be named later. Huh? The janitor surpassed you, man? 
basically everybody. By the way, janitors here are incredible. They're, they're all Blues games. Come in and say hi. Uh, I guess it's got to be the player to be named later because it's either me or T-Bone. Yeah, I would point. agree with that. Oh, I, was, well, I didn't even think that we could be the player to be named later. Well, who later. else would be the player? He doesn't work with anybody else. I don't know. I was starting to wonder if the player to be named later has not had success. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do that. Okay, so it's the janitor. No, I'm keeping, I like the janitor. Well, who are you getting rid of then? The player to be named later. That's one of us. He's getting rid of Jamie. I heard him say it. Oh, he did say that Jamie's trash. No, I was not the one pushing back on something Jamie said the other day. Whoa! 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 Oh! Well, no, that's coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you've missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. I have tasked Tanner with taking out each one of my coughs from the show today, so that will not be a part of Tanner. We'll see you Monday. Your podcasting experience. Alex, I think you should enhance the audio on all of his coughs on the broadcast today. Danny Mack mentioned yesterday while he was in with uh, Anthony Stalter on the fast lane. He believes that this upcoming 10 game road trip in Seattle, San Francisco and Los Angeles against the Dodgers could be a first half defining road trip. It's 10 games. So by virtue of that, it is what 10% of the first half. So it very well could be that. I also think it's important because the Cardinals feel like they're at a fork in the road in this season. You're eight and 11 right now. You're three games under 500. If you come back home and you finish, say, 7-3 and three on this road trip, you end up, you come home, you're above 500, you're taking on the Angels, the Tigers, the Cubs, and the Red Sox, you're feeling pretty good, right? You're like, okay, this season's heading in the right direction. But if it goes the other way, if you lose 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10 against these three potentially peer programs, I think people are going to start hitting the panic button. Because at that point, you're at the end of April, you're... 30 games into the season and things have not been fixed. I agree with Danny Mac. I do think this has the potential to be a first half defining road trip for the Cardinals. Well, and I mean, look at the team. Let's just go off of the Milwaukee Brewers who have a little bit more of a favorable schedule Absolutely. in the same time that you have this road. You're six games out right now. And if you go under 500, Milwaukee goes above 500. I mean, we're talking double digit games back. And, and, and get, speaking of the Brewers, they just swept the same yeah. Mariners team that you're about to go up. They're against. seven and three in their last 10 games. And, and I mean, I know it's only a small sample size, but against teams that are below 500, Milwaukee six and three Pittsburgh's three and oh, Cubs are five and five. The Reds are four and eight, but you're six and 10. So, I mean, as as much as we can sit here and say like it's only May, things can change. You know, you've got plenty more season to go. 
If you're talking 11, 12 games back in the NL Central, we're once again talking wild card, not talking winning the division and pushing for uh, one of the top two spots, which to me is a little bit more of a panic button because you're going in this vicious circle of the same thing over and over and over and over. You've got some interesting pitching matchups in this series. It's George Kirby on the mound tonight. He's a right-handed pitcher. I would expect this is going to be one of your classic lineups. Like you'll go Donovan, Burleson, Burleson Goldie, Arenado, Contreras. You'll get Newt Bar in there. Uh, you're going you're Gorman. You're throwing all your lefties in there. This is your classic. Let's see what the Cardinals can do with Yo, their smash. best lineup that is out there, right? Castillo is tomorrow. Dylan Carlson has some really good splits in his career against Luis Castillo. Now it's worth noting. Luis Castillo has been freaking awesome so far this season. He's gone 24 and two-thirds innings and has allowed a total of two earned runs in those 20, uh, 24 and two-thirds innings. He's got four starts so far this year. He's been amazing for Seattle thus far. The Cardinals, though, their lineup has had success against him. That's one of those games where we're going to be judging them on that because that's the kind of pitcher you're going to be seeing in the postseason. And then on Sunday, I mentioned this earlier today, and T-Bone, I know you disagree with that. I'm sure there's a lot of people that disagree with it. vehemently disagrees. Something that I would like to see the Cardinals do is, I think you could do this with both players, but especially with Dylan Carlson. He has been struggling mightily against right-handed pitching again this season. He struggled against right-handed pitching for the entirety of his career. Chris Flexen is the starter on the mound for the Mariners on Sunday. He has reverse splits, and what I mean by that is right-handed hitters are much better against him than left-handed hitters. So instead of throwing out the lineup that we just talked about for tonight where you've got Gorman and Donovan and Newt Bar, all these lefties, potentially throw in uh, Dylan Carlson from the left side, Tommy Edmond from the left side, let Dylan Carlson start that game and let him bat from the right side because right-handed hitters are batting 350 with an OPS of 1,000 against Flexen this year. Dylan Carlson could eventually be somebody that spends more of his time from the right side. This is a rare opportunity to find out what that looks like. I don't know if it'll work or not. It might be a disaster. And three at-bats in, you say, you know what? Uh, We're abandoning this. We're not doing it again in the future. But if it ends up looking good, I think it's something that the Cardinals should or potentially will experiment with. This is the rare opportunity to go up against a guy where it actually makes some sense for him to bat from the right side against a right-handed pitcher because of that pitcher's splits as well as what Dylan Carlson's splits are. So that presents a rare opportunity for them, and I, I'm very curious to see if they decide to take it. I, I just I don't like the idea of doing it because I think they have better options to run out there, and I know what you're saying about, well, he's not good against right-handers. I still would much rather just see Tyler O'Neill, Jordan Walker, and uh, Lars Newtbar out there in center field. I think that's the best way they can construct that lineup rather than having Dylan Carlson try something that he's never done before, which is hit right-handed against a right-handed pitcher. I think if you're going to do that, that needs to be something that is worked on through an offseason and is also worked on in spring training and then carries over into the season. I think it's just too late at this point. I don't want to be experimenting with it in games that really matter. I would much, and I just think you have better outfielders right now than Dylan Carlson. I I don't know if we know. I think we, depending on how you view Carlson, I think I know what Dylan Carlson is. I think he's a fourth outfielder. I think you just have better options. So I'd much rather see them in that game on Sunday rather than seeing him try something that he's not done at the major league level yet in his MLB career. This is something that we have seen once from Tommy Edmond. He has four plate appearances against right-handed hitter or right-handed pitchers rather as a right-handed hitter. Now, 
He's over four. It has not worked for him in those scenarios. Um, so maybe that is, I mean, it's super small sample size, but maybe that suggests that it doesn't work. I would try it. I would get creative with it. I would try to explore this opportunity. I also think Dylan Carlson helps you defensively. He makes you a little better in the outfield when you've got him out there. So I would give it a go, find out what happens. And if it doesn't work out, cool, no harm, no foul. We move on. We don't try it again. If it does work out, maybe it's something that you do try to experiment with a little bit more over the course of this season. You don't know until you try. And for Dylan Carlson, this is something that I would be trying to do out there. Um, It'll be interesting to see what the Cardinals end up going with because I think in their next seven games, they've got six right-handed pitchers on the mound. You're going to have to pick your spots of where Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill are getting their opportunities if they're going to be getting their opportunities. I think the more we talk about this being a road trip that's going to be impactful for the season, I think this is also going to be a road trip that's impactful for one, maybe two of your outfielders. I think if I'm Ali, I'm going to be watching this road trip if I'm giving these guys opportunities and figure out, you know what? These are our guys moving forward rather than let's keep this revolving door moving. Wilking Rodriguez had his rehab start or his rehab appearance the other day. We had uh, Adam Wainwright making his rehab start the other day. There are some decisions that are coming. Paul DeYoung's rehab stint is going to be coming to an end sooner rather than later. Roster decisions are coming in the very near future. We'll see what the the next few games and really this road trip means for all of those decisions. We'll talk about all of that coming up on Monday at 11 a.m. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys on Monday at 11. The Fast Lane is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. Alex, did you know that T-Bone's been dreaming about me? Listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.